What about, is, was this, this record also too, was it a way of, of kind of working your way through grief from you know, the death of, of Linda? I, I think so, a little bit, because uh, she'd always said to me, she loved her rock and roll, she'd always said to me, you've got to do that rock and roll album. I said, yeah, I'll do it, I'll do it, I'll do it. So I think when she died, you know, I thought, you know what, I really have got to do that rock and roll album. Mm. Um, so I left things for about a year, didn't really want to do anything, wanted to just sort of see how it was going to affect me, you know, rather than just jump into work and get busy and try and ignore it and deny it all. I thought, you know, 30 years with a, such a beautiful woman, I've got to see how this is going to affect me, you know, I don't want to hide all my sort of feelings. So I took about a year doing that, and then when I was ready to work again, I thought, it's got to be that rock and roll album. Right. And, and how did it affect you? I mean, what, what was it like? I mean, it's an awful um, question to ask anybody. Yeah, it's, uh, well, you know, I, I didn't expect to be sitting here being asked that. You know, we expected yeah. to be 80-year-old on the porch on our rocking chairs, you know. But um, it, it was very difficult, of course, you know. It was very sad because we thought, we fought against it. We, we did everything you could possibly do. Uh, so to the last minute, you know, we thought we might have cracked it. You know, always, there's always hope. Um, so when, when she did die, it was just a terrible blow for me and the kids, basically, so, I mean, and all her family. Nothing prepares you. I mean, you had the two years. I don't years think you can get prepared for that. No, it's just, it's just horribly sad. And um, I think, you know, as I say, I just decided that instead of just say, right, that's it, I'm British, oh, you know, get on with it. I thought, right, I'm going to sit here and cry, you know, so I did. I just, anyone who came round, who just <laughs> cried. Hello, I don't know you. <laughs> Um, but that's, that's I, you not know, very it, British, is it? But it's, it's, it's very British Irish, of course. Very Irish. Very ah. Irish. Well, God bless the Irish. <laughs> but of but, course, um, I mean, in, in a sense as well. I mean, you, you've been through this terrible grief once with your mother too, haven't you? So. Yeah, that was one of the sort of frightening things, really, because uh, as the as it was going along, there were little echoes that I remember from my childhood the, of it happening to my mum. One particularly is uh, I remember mum getting tired. And us kids didn't really know. I remember my dad saying, well, go upstairs, love, and have 40 winks. So I, like, made sure, I, when Linda got tired, I never said to her, go upstairs and have 40 winks. You know, you get a bit superstitious and all that stuff. Yeah, so it was um, not very nice at all. Because no. she was such a beautiful woman, you know, a strong woman. She was a difficult woman to lose. And also, too, of course, I mean, you had this remarkable relationship, didn't you? I mean, it mean, remarkable, you know, in any case, but in the business you were in, it was extraordinary. It was unique in a yeah. sense. Yeah, we were very lucky. I mean, you were kind of two sides of the, of the same coin, weren't you, in that sense? Yeah, she was, um, you know, my girlfriend, really. Mm. Uh, we kind of got married, you know, I got kind of knighted. She became Lady Linda, but we're still just boyfriend and girlfriend in a way. You know, we were very lucky. Gorgeous kids together, you know, so yes. uh, we spent a lot of time together. Yes. That was a great thing. We never really wanted to be apart. People would say, well, you know, why, why aren't you on your own tonight? We said, well, why? She's great, you know, I like yes. her. I like sleeping with her. She's good. <laughs> so it was just very natural, you know, it just fell in very naturally and uh, very honest with each other. So we're very lucky. I mean, that's how I look at it now. I'm very, very lucky to have had 30 glorious years with her. You know, it makes it harder to lose her. But there are some people who have, you know, 70 years and don't really like each other. So, yes. you know, that yeah. happens too. Welcome to Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. Join me, your host, Sam Wiles, as we discover the history, the music, and the man behind it all, Paul McCartney. 
To get in contact with the show, email us at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Hello, 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 hi, 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 and welcome to another episode of Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul all, all of the time. the time. And remember, this is widescreen podcasting. This is wide, wide, widescreen, screen, screen, podcasting, ding, ding. I am, of course, your host, Sam Wiles. Thank you all for tuning in, and I hope you're all well, safe, and sound. Yes, everyone, we are back today to finish off all of the backstory and the history of Paul McCartney's 1999 covers album, but not quite a covers album, Run, Devil, Run. Last week, we covered Paul's motives for doing the album, his reasoning behind the song selection, as well as a summary of producer Chris Thomas and the rest of his bandmates. We are here this week, though, to top all of that off. What's left? Well, a lot more than I thought, I'll tell you that for free, as Run Devil Run truly is one of those albums where the deeper you look, the more you find and the realise, the more you have to cover. But yeah, today we're going to go through the recording sessions themselves, the history of all of the songs that Paul is covering, the album artwork, the album's release, massive promotional push, sales and critical reception. Of course, this episode is really kind of the second half of what the original part one was going to be. But as I mentioned in that episode, I am making an effort to keep these episodes between like 90 minutes to two hours in order to kind of get the schedule back online after a few too many big bumper three and a half hour long episodes. I mean, I didn't think Run Devil Run would take as long to cover as, say, a regular album but hey, here we are, and whether this is a regular album is actually one of the questions I do ask myself quite a lot in this episode. Actually, maybe that's the answer in itself. But anyway, speaking of that Denny Lane episode, actually, um, the one that I probably should have split into two episodes and got twice the downloads for. But anyway, I'm, I'm honestly kind of glad that that Denny Lane tribute episode delayed this one as long as it did, as it has afforded me more than enough time to truly appreciate Run Devil Run for what it is. As with all Paul McCartney albums, you have to let them sit with you for a while, and this is no different. At first, I was a little sceptical, being that I am such a huge fan of uh, the Chobber album, Snobber VCCR, and it was only really the bigger tracks from this album that I had any affinity for. But now, after a little time, I am a complete convert and devout follower, you know, the ever-faithful disciple of St. Paul, if you will, meaning I am oh so excited to get into today's episode, but what's got me even more jazzed up is that I've finally confirmed my guest for the next episode, aka part three, where me and my guests will be going through the songs themselves, and I'm very pleased to announce that it is going to be none other than Mr. TJ Shanov from the absolutely killer Untitled Beatles podcast, one of my favourite shows out there. Of course, I had TJ on for one of the Driving Rain review episodes, and I am just gassed to have him back on. But again, I am getting ahead of myself. Let's dial the clock back to spring 1999, when Paul was just gearing up to start recording Run, Devil, Run. Let's crack on. 
For many years, I've been thinking about doing a rock and roll album. It's something that Lynn and I were talking about, and she was very keen on the idea. She loved her rock and roll. So she loved the idea of me doing some of these songs that I never did with the Beatles. So I started planning it, and what happened was I started to remember that the early recording sessions with the Beatles happened a particular way. And a very specific way, what happened is she was supposed to get at the studio for 10 o'clock. Then you're supposed to be ready with your guitar in tune or your bass, set up your amp, everything ready to go by 10.30. Then at 10.30, the grown-ups would kind of arrive. Then they'd say, what are we doing? You'd tell them. Uh, and in the next three hours, you were expected to do two songs. Then at 1.30, you had 1.30 to 2.30 hours lunch. Then 2.30 to 5.30, you did another three hours, another two songs. That was the way we worked for quite a while, like uh, Revolver, Rubber Soul, all the early albums. And I remember loving it, because it was so fast. There was no time for anything but music. It wasn't indulgent, you couldn't have time. So I thought it'd be really great to do that again. I had a kind of like professional nostalgia for that way of working. So I thought, I wonder if it would work these days, you know? The other thing I realized was that when John and I were writing, we often would have written the stuff just the week before. So when the producer, George Martin, the engineer, would say, all right, what are we doing? John and I would say, well, it goes like this. We'd pull our guitars out and we'd show them the song. Often, Ringo and George also didn't know what was coming up. They weren't with us when we'd written. So it was really fresh. It meant that everything we were recording, people had only just heard for the first time, so you really had to think, what do I want to do on this? Make instant decisions. Nothing could be left till later. You just have to go and do it. So I thought, well, I should try and recreate exactly that. So what I did was I booked Abbey Road Studios, Studio Two, which is our old studio, for a week. And what I did on this Monday morning, said hello to people, got in tune, made the sure everything was working. 10.30, I just would look through the Miller envelope. I just would find the first song I really fancied, one or two, maybe we do that later. They go, ooh, fancy this one. Pull it out, say to everyone, now anyone know, no other baby? And they all go, no. Because you know, some of these are quite obscure. So they say, no, I said, well, okay, here's how it goes. Exactly as we used to. So, do, do, do. It only took 15 minutes to show them the song. And these guys are such good musicians that then we just split to our various instruments and we just try it. We'll go and listen to it once, go down and do a couple of takes, get a good take, and it was like, okay, next song, ching. And that was it, and we raced through them, and at the end of the week we'd done like 19 songs, you know. And I think we really all, I know we really all enjoyed doing it. Somebody said to me, didn't you have any ego problems with all the band, you know, I didn't know. I said, it wasn't time, there was no time. It was like, next song, ching, lunch, ching. You know, I'd run over, stick a soup on, do a salad, ching, back to, to you know, it was, it was great. It was really quite hard work, but very satisfying. So at the end, and at 5.30 in the evening, we'd just say, right, going home, night, which is unheard of now. I mean, that's like an office job, you know. But it worked, and it was really great, very satisfying, and we often came out of each day with about four songs. So it was very fresh, very, about as fresh as you could get. Right, folks, we've covered all the people involved, as well as the reasons behind why this album has come to be. And so let's get into the meat and the potatoes of the sessions themselves. And again, as I mentioned earlier, I wasn't expecting too much in the way of complexity here, but as always with Paul, there is more than meets the eye. 
First of all, we have the location. And folks, if you thought I was done talking about McCartney regressing and returning to what he knows in the last episode, then you are sorely mistaken, as not only is he returning to a collection of songs he already has played, a collection of songs from before Linda, but now he's returning to the first place he would or could have ever recorded them. Yes, for Run Devil Run, we are eschewing the regular locale of Paul's Hog Hill Mill, or Hogs Hill Mill, I always forget, home studio, and instead we are returning to none other than EMI slash Abbey Road Studios, more specifically, Studio 2, the exact same room that Paul recorded old rock and roll standards in with the Beatles all the way back in 1962 to 1970. Now, rather like the hiring of virtuoso record producer Chris Thomas for this seemingly simple record, I did initially have a thought along the lines of, well, it's a bit of a shame that Paul would quote-unquote waste his grand return to this studio on an album like this and not on a proper quote-unquote studio album. But again, like the hiring of Thomas, it does make sense in a kind of Machiavellian pre-planned way when you think about it. First of all, if you're hiring the best producer and the best musicians in the business, then you're going to want to have the best studio setup to complement all of that. Now, I am not at all saying that Hog Hill slash Hogs Hill Mill is a rudimentary setup like it's banned on the run in Lagos or anything. Just that you're going to want the best bang for your buck if you're shelling out already. Also, if this is quote-unquote for Linda, this album, which it 100% is, then Paul is going to want to do right by her by making sure his baby only has the best. Plus, Paul knows Abbey Road like the back of his hand and will know exactly how to get the sounds he wants to achieve in that space. I mean, it's not completely out of the realms of possibility that Paul did consider recording it at Hog Hill Mill and decided that rock and roll doesn't sound quite as good there. Who knows? Plus, I imagine it's a hell of a lot easier to host a bunch of musicians in the centre of London for a week than it is at your own home. This isn't just like having Steve Miller over for a few months. That's just one guy and one bed. There's a whole gang of them this time around. As well as all of the physical benefits, though, we should also discuss the psychological ones. Yes, we are dragging this topic back to Paul's mental state, because we have to remember that this whole album is just one big trip down memory lane for him, in an attempt to get back to his rock and roll roots, as per Linda's recommendation. I mean, it's all one big contradiction, and we're going to see contradictions like that throughout. You know, it's for Linda, but it's also about forgetting her. It's about moving on, but it's about the past as well. There's all of that here. But yeah, the whole point is to try and keep his mind off her as best he can and throw himself back into his work. And what could possibly remind him more of Linda daily than by working at Hog Hill Mill, Hogs Hill Mill, their home together. And so I personally don't see it as any coincidence that he would return back to the place he was most happy making music before he met her. And I know Abbey Road isn't like a totally Linda-free environment or anything like that. Like there is footage of her at the Get Back and Abbey Road sessions, that kind of thing. But this early kind of rock and roll Beatles era, it is very much pre-Linda. Plus, you know, 
if it is just part of all of my overthinking, I'll just chuck it down to another one of those contradictions for this album. Either way, though, for me, Paul returning to Abbey Road is just as much a mental health choice as it is a practical one. You know, this studio is Paul McCartney's version of comfort food. It's the first studio where he recorded, the first studio where he recorded old rock and roll standards. And as a space, it represents that youthful, carefree, responsibility-less, griefless lifestyle that Paul, in his pain, probably kind of wishes he could get back to. And besides, as we're going to talk about in just a couple of seconds, these sessions were going to be produced in a very Beatlesque manner anyway. So if you're going to record in that way, why not record it in the exact place it was recorded? I mean, in theory, Paul should be able to close his eyes during these sessions and almost feel like he's been transported back to a session in 62 or 63 where he's recording some Beatles album filler. We also cannot forget about the effect and the benefits that recording at Abbey Road would give the other musicians. You know, there's a, a certain added boost of excitement and fun for them. Like, recording with Paul McCartney is one thing, but at Abbey Road? Now, that is an entirely different story to tell at dinner. On top of that, Paul has gone through the entire Beatles anthology process during the early 90s, meaning his Beatles love has never been higher, and so it's not hard to imagine that he's been itching for an excuse to return to Abbey Road. And we also cannot ignore the possibility that simply our boy Paul just wanted a little change from working at home. And so we find ourselves in the studio of the Beatles. And speaking of the Beatles, as Paul detailed in the clip that, that we played just a few seconds ago, the defining go-to McCartney story about this album is about how these sessions were constructed to be, for all intents and purposes, meant to be very Beatles-esque. They were meant to be like those old Beatles sessions. A recreation, a replication, whatever you want to call it, Paul wanted to record this album like he did with the Fabs. How did this manifest exactly? Well, Paul described it in Mojo magazine as thus. I remembered early Beatle recording techniques because we weren't a famous act yet and we were given a schedule of exactly how to make a record. You'd come in at 10, set up your amp and your guitar or drums, you'd have a ciggy and a cup of tea, get in tune, and then by 10.30 you'd have to, to be ready to go. You just had to be ready or the grown-ups would be annoyed. We worked from 10.30 to 1.30 and we were expected to do two songs. We took an hour's lunch exactly, then worked from 2.30 to 5.30. Then you went home. You went to the pictures or the pub or something. So the next day, when you came in, You'd had a life. You'd seen a great film or something that would have informed you. So I thought that's exactly what I'd do. I'd book Abbey Road for one week only, get a bunch of guys together, and go do this thing exactly the way we used to. Once again, there is method to this madness, as not only was Paul purposefully trying to work in the environment that he found to be the most fun, but based on his own experience in doing so, he was also trying to create a very specific in recording environment that would be as greatly beneficial to the recordings as possible. However, it is clear that Paul was going to be playing a lot of this close to the chest and not exactly informing everyone of the gimmick, 
especially in regards to the whole introducing the bands to the songs in the studio on the day, magical spontaneity kind of aspect of the process. Paul continues. I remember John bringing in Girl that we just written the week before. I remember coming into the studio, Abbey Road number two, sort of summerish. I seem to remember, you'll have to ask Mark Lewison, but in my memory, it's quite summery. I'd just come back from a holiday in Greece, so I was all bazookied out, hence the guitar sound on that record. That's my Greek holiday creeping in there. I remember John and I arriving at the studio, starting the session midday sometime, with George Martin and Jeff Emmerich. I think George and Ringo were coming in, all of them saying, OK, what are we going to do? And the great thing, I realised, shit, the producers didn't have an idea what we were throwing in, the engineer certainly didn't, the two other guys in the band didn't know what we were going to throw. It was so think on your feet, and it was actually an improvement that no one knew. It was like you'd just written it on the spot for them, so you can't get any fresher than that. I remember John saying, it goes like this, girl, and I want to get that intake of breath, and I'm doing the harmony, and me doing all the ding, 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 zorba, and it all hit like a bit of a bombshell. Nobody except me and John knew, and that was kind of exciting. Of course, based on what we learned from the last episode, we know that Paul has picked the whole list of songs to play, and he knew how they all went, and he knew how he would play it, but that luxury was not afforded to the rest of the band. That is hilarious. (laughs) So... You know, you're just walking into the studio with Paul, your idol. You're trying not to be starstruck. And now he's teaching you a song that maybe you kind of remember from your childhood. Maybe you kind of know how it goes. Maybe you haven't heard it at all and you don't know the chords whatsoever. Like I say, Paul finds that exciting. I hope they did as well. Paul details here saying, I'd go into the guys and say, anybody knows she said yeah. And they'd say no. Because there were slightly obscure choices, I'd say, okay, this is how it goes. Anybody know? No other baby. No? Right, here's how it goes. And as we were doing it, I thought, God, I haven't been doing this since I was 14. And I got the same feeling back. Now, as seemingly hardcore as this may sound to anyone who doesn't play an instrument, maybe, these guys are all hard-fought, well-trained, grizzled veterans of the music scene. And so... More than likely, they'll be more than able to keep up with Paul and learn a song or two on the fly and do it well, especially with the limited chords and chord changes and time signatures that makes up the period that they will be covering. And I mean, if you don't believe me, listen to the final album. But Paul wouldn't be doing this same gimmick with the producer, would he? I mean, he would at least let Chris Thomas know of what they were going to be doing that day, right? Well, apparently not. Paul details in the album sleeve notes. The week before, Ian asked co-producer Chris Thomas, any idea what songs we're going to do, just so I can do a bit of homework? And I said, no, no homework on this project. I really wanted this to be fresh, like it was at the cavern. Now, does telling a bunch of 40 to 60-year-olds what they're going to be playing then and there and having them learn it on the spot truly the same as the early Beatles recording environment? No, I don't think anyone is going to say that. But it was clearly important for Paul to either make everyone, including himself, think that it was, or at least to try and get as close as possible. Why? Well... There are several practical benefits to Paul's methodology, first of all. 
He, of all people, is more than aware of the benefits of having restrictions and deadlines, even if they are self-imposed or arbitrary. And as far as the other bandmates know, the restrictions aren't self-imposed or arbitrary, meaning that you are genuinely going to get a better performance out of everyone. You are more likely going to get that energy, that lightning in a bottle. And most importantly, it's going to make Paul happy and 100% make him play better in kind. Also, as Paul mentions in a lot of the interviews, these conditions for recording also meant that there wasn't even time to consider egos or anything like that. You know, Paul's hired these guys as musicians. They've only got a third or a quarter of a day to do a song. And so arguments and debates and overthinking and egos were not even an option, let alone a problem, because there simply wasn't the time. And going back to the armchair psychologist perspective, look, folks, he's nearly 60 at this point, and he's lost his wife. And whilst it, it was a bit glib of me in the last episode to call this phase of his his midlife crisis, but he is clearly trying to go back to a time before all of this. And it makes total sense, you know. Those early Beatles sessions left an indelible mark on our Macca, and as far as he is concerned, they are the pinnacle of young, excitable creativity, but also of prolific professionalism. With this ethos, Paul is trying to recapture the feel of his youth and the productiveness of his youth, and just to kind of exist there for just a little moment, you know, just to get out of his head for a bit. And I don't judge him for that. I really don't. Anyway, I want to end this little bit on a lighter note. So I will just mention, I do think it is rather funny. I'm not ashamed in admitting this, that obviously when Paul was recording Please Please Me or Beatles for Sale and he's talking about trying to keep the quote-unquote adults happy, George Martin, one of the adults at that time, was only 36 years old. And now Paul, in 1999 was 50 fucking seven. Now, whilst Paul was going to be recording this in a Beatles style, it wasn't ever hyped up as like a Beatle level project. I don't think that those expectations were ever enforced on anyone involved. Of course, this project is meant to be something stress-free for Paul, and I don't think there could be anything more stressful than anything on the level of a Beatles album. And so... What he was going to do, more or less, is what he did with Linda in her last few months on this earth, which was to make an album, but not really make an album, and kind of make something a little more personal and a little less commercial, or at least that's kind of how it was going to start out anyway. We'll see how it goes later on. But this is what he did in 98 with Rushes, and... As Chris Thomas states here in 99, it seems like that was going to be the initial tone of the Run Devil Run recordings. Thomas states, He wasn't thinking it was going to be the next big record. He was just free to enjoy himself. Thomas echoes a similar notion in uh, Peter Ames Carlin's Paul McCartney A Life, when he says the point was for them just to play and have fun. 
And so the word fun comes back up again and again. And the notion of fun being a significant goal in these sessions is also present in a quote from Paul, taken directly from the Run Devil Run CD booklet, saying, We'd take five or ten minutes, and that's how we did it in the Beatles, because how many times can you go through a song without everyone getting bored? We'd spend 15, 20 minutes top whack, and everyone would go, yeah, got it. We'd go to our instruments, I'd go to the bass and start singing, and we'd just try it. It's a bit ropey at first. Second take, it gets better. We'd do a couple of takes and say, okay, that's it. Then we'd leave it and not even listen to it. First of all, isn't it adorable that Sir Paul McCartney, even in 1999, is worried about making everyone else in the studio bored? That's a, a wonderful little notion. I think we should probably pick up on that more than we should have. But yeah, the point to take home is that this is all very carefree in its production style. And more importantly, on the post-production as well, as discussed again in Paul McCartney, A Life by Peter Ames Carlin, the exact vibes that Paul was after would not just be in the studio, but for the mixing desk too. It reads, Nothing should be fussed over. No time could be spent on applying spit and polish. They had a week to record as many songs as they felt like playing, and whatever happened was exactly what should happen. We were going to do the songs, and that was it, Thomas says. No post-production. All very quick. Again, we've got two things going on there. First of all, it's all very in-theme. It's all very uh, in-character in terms of doing a 50s rock and roll covers album, because back then there wasn't a whole lot of overdubbing, and there are definitely no orchestral elements that need to be added in later, anything like that. It all makes sense. It's a, another fun restriction to put on the sessions. But more importantly, this style of recording is a classic low-stake, low-effort environment for Paul to simply stretch his legs and play some music. You know, just to record without the pressure of making this a full-on studio album with all of the weight and responsibility that goes along with that. Again, he's still a beast who may have had his spirits dampened, but he's still going to be, you know, working harder than everyone else. This is, again, his version of taking it easy. But yeah, the point is, is that this environment, as convoluted and as consciously constructed as it has been, it is still as close to capturing a certain kind of magic that McCartney feels like he needs to reconnect with in terms of his musical voice. I guess that's all I'm saying. But as always, folks, things are not so simple. There is a big twist with this album, even though it is going to be a bunch of songs taken from the 50s and 60s, perhaps even earlier, even though it is going to be recorded with very little post-production. It's all going to be done in studio with a rather old set of instruments, if you will. The sound they were going for was going to be anything but dated. No. Instead, well, actually, I'll let Paul explain it himself. You said they're retro songs, but they're not retro sounds. Yeah. Can you kind of explain what that means? Yeah, you know, sometimes if you listen to the radio you'll hear a modern song, and then, if it's a kind of liberal enough station, you might hear an old rock and roll song. Sometimes the sound is just woollier, and it's just a little bit more old-fashioned, it's not as crisp, not as clear, 
uh, as a modern recording, just because that's what's improved, you know. Uh, some people don't like that improvement, but people are used to it now. When you listen on the radio, there's a kind of standard of sound that if you don't get in that ballpark one way or another, they won't play it. And so, you know, that's not what you want. So me and Chris, the producer, talked and I said, you know, it'd be really good if, if our stuff, even though the songs are retro, could live alongside normal stuff that's being played on the radio. No, not old fashioned stuff, modern stuff. Um, so that was our policy, was to do that. So we, we talked to Jeff, the engineer, and said, okay, we want it to kind of be, you know, modern sounding, but the songs themselves obviously are going to be old songs, except the new ones, which will be new. Well, there were a couple of songs that really, I just wanted to kind of be faithful to the originals, just because the memory was just so clear. Now, Paul repeats a similar sentiment in Mojo magazine again, where he describes that old rock and roll sound rather deftly as being rather woolly and fluffy. And I totally get what he means by that, as well as why he would want to avoid such a sound on this record. This is meant to be fresh, young and cool. And so a bookishly faithful rock sound was never going to make its way into the final product. Though... That has always been something that has interested me. I'll probably bring it up with TJ next week. So yeah, whilst the band and Chris Thomas would be limiting themselves to pretty old school instrumentation, guitars, bass, drums, keys, they weren't going to be bothering with any old equipment, desks or eight track machines to record it on and they weren't going to be trying to achieve any sound or style that would be reminiscent from those original recordings. Now, the first thing that comes to my mind here is that this is the most efficient use of everyone's time. I mean, you get to use Abbey Road to the fullest of its abilities as a modern studio. You get to use Chris Thomas to his full ability as a modern producer and all these hardcore musicians can play hardcore music without feeling restricted or constrained to a certain outdated style. Plus, we can't deny the fact that keeping things modern and keeping things fast and simple would also keep everything cheap. Let's be real, folks, you know, creating the older style of rock and roll would be a more time-consuming process, and fundamentally... As interested as I would be to listen to it now in 2024, I'm not sure many people would have been interested in it in 1999. Ultimately, the decision to record these old school songs in this modern way meant that they were going to be as palatable and as relevant to modern audiences as possible. Paul might not be able to breathe new life into old 50 standards in their old style, but he can bring them right up to the new millennium with everything that he has at his disposal for these sessions. And besides, both audiences benefit from this move too. The normies get an album that is surprisingly commercial for what it is, especially for an album that is so ostensibly a throwback. But it also means that us fans who have been crying out for more hard rockers especially coming into the modern period, this pre-driving rain era, we get exactly what we've been bugging him about for all these years. Everyone's a winner. 
However, there is one exception to this general rule, and that is with the opening track, Blue Jean Bop. Paul continues, We didn't put any old-fashioned echo on anything, except for Blue Jean Bop. That I had to do with echo, because that was my memory. Again, I learnt something making this. These guys wrote for echo, singing with like a, a light staccato. be bop she's my baby. That kicks in the echo to a rhythm, and then we had the two guitars in, and it was too jangly and it didn't swing. So, I was talking to Ian and singing it with him with the echo on. Just pass me a bass and him on drums. Wait a minute, this is the way to do it. This sounds enough. So yeah, the only time Paul did do a faithful recreation of the original one was because he simply had no choice. Although, as we've discussed several times on the podcast before, it's normally best to let Paul exercise those curious demons of his in the middle of a project like this, rather than let it fester and potentially infect other songs. We'll probably talk about how uh, the Fats Domino cover Coquette is quite similar to the original as well, but I'd argue that it's for similar reasons. Of course, this modern sound means that the album does rock rather hard, especially for a Paul McCartney album. And that really is not a coincidence, as something else that I noticed Paul comment on whilst promoting this album was a concern that some of his fans were worrying that his recent classical albums like Liverpool Oratorio or Standing Stone and the soon-to-be-released Working Classical were maybe distracting him from his regular sound, or even worse, becoming his new priority. At the very end of the iconic Run Devil Run interview that I've been extensively using mostly on the last episode, but also in this next recording session segment, Paul drops this line. In a way though, I'm glad with this rock and roll album that I've been able to get back to my roots. So I will be able to reassure anyone who thinks, oh, he's gone all classical now. That's simply not the case, you know. It's just another of the things that I do. I still love my rock and roll music. So... From this, we can infer that Paul's worry that we don't think he's cool anymore may have been a potential motivator for this album specifically being a rock and roll covers album and not any other type of covers album. Of course, Flaming Pie was and is still known more of as an acoustic album more than anything, and Off the Ground wasn't the heaviest thing around either, so I could understand why Paul might want to reassure certain elements of his fan base with an album like this. Not saying any of it supersedes the Linda factors, or that even that this is a major player in his decision-making, I'm just saying it's a factor, a factor. What I enjoy so much about Run Devil Run is how well it achieves this rock and roll goal, as the final material is mostly heavier than the majority of the rest of his discography, rock songs included. It's also delightfully ironic that, you know, one of Macca's heaviest albums with his heaviest arrangements is all for songs that were anything but heavy when they were originally recorded back when Paul was a child. Again, it is making these songs more relevant, it is making them able to be digested by modern ears, of course, but I also see it as a kind of a wry, cheeky nod and wink to the fans, like, okay, I'm going to give you a load of rock songs, I will give you them, but on a covers album, which should be bad, but it's going to be so good and so heavy that you won't even care that they aren't originals. Though, perhaps this is exactly why Linda was suggesting Paul do some harder rock in the first place. I mean, she was 
way more in touch with the fans than he ever was. And she was involved in Club Sandwich more than Paul was. And so maybe this whole thing comes right back around to her and that this is her, just like after the Beatles broke up, getting Paul back on track. Again, just a theory. How did you put the band together? Was it? I mean, what do you? How do you go about it? Just it was. Um, put an in, in it was a, music matter, a bit of luck, really. Um, I knew. I've known Dave at yeah, Gilmore a long Gilmore. time. Uh, we'd worked together, and uh, so I knew he'd be great. And I asked him if he'd fancy doing it. He did, and I knew he was a bit of a rock and roller, even though he's known for Pink Floyd uh, and the sort of epic thing. And I knew he went back to the rock and roll thing. Mick I'd worked with before. Mick Green, who used to be in Johnny Kidd and the Pirates. And uh, we did a thing called the Russian Album, which was only available in Russia. <laughs> it's really pissed the Americans off, something rotten. They could only buy it in, from Russia, you had to order it. We had some funny times doing that. Um, but I digress. And then I didn't know Ian, but yeah. uh, looking Ian around Pace. for a drummer, Ian Pace, and um, producer I was working with, Chris, said he'd just seen a TV show. He said he'd seen him on it and he was playing great and he's a really great drummer. I said, well, you know, let's do a bit of guesswork. And we asked Ian if he'd do it, and he did. And then Pete Winfield, we were asking around about pianists and uh, on everyone's list, Pete's name came up. And I knew he'd done a record called 18 with a Bullet. So I knew he, he was good in studios, made his own records. So those two, the, the latter two, I didn't even meet till the Monday morning. All right. Such was the nature of the project. Well, it was a great fun making records like that, actually. I mean, it's, it's, it was, you know, when I look back on my recording career, it was yeah. kind of the, the, the best period, I thought. It was the early Beatles Sorry, period yes. of working quick and having to think on the spot, not having a long time to really think what you were doing. Yes. You just had to dash it off. And if something went wrong, you had to think of a way to fix it quickly. Yes. Which, you know, often... It's, it's a better way. Yeah. And by the end of the week, you've got 20 tracks done. That's yeah. also <laughs> a better way. It also suits the music, that kind of approach. To I music. think so, too, yeah. I, mean, if it's, I like if it's... the idea of making the next stuff that way. Really? Maybe fussing with it a bit afterwards. Yeah. But certainly doing the live, trying to get that live feeling so you get the spirit on the track. Yes. And then you can tart it up a bit if you want. Yes. So, uh... OK, so we'll send it on and on, then we, and then we come to the, to the end. Um, you know that Ian Pace is a cricketer of some notes, don't you? I do, I do understand, he, he yes. He played for Maidenhead and Bray Cricket Team. Not many people know this. Yeah. I don't think he knew it at the time. <laughs> cricketer? Yes. He used to live in the fisheries. <laughs> Did you get the grapes? <laughs> he sent the grapes. <laughs> <laughs> OK, so another trap from the album, then. And this, again, is a classic. All shook up. Aye, aye. Here we go. go. With your band. <clears throat> Sugar. 
Sounded quieter when we well, first started. You sounded from, quiet yeah. on there. Just yeah. join them there. So we were, we were like raving like lunatics in rehearsal. Yeah. So keep it up, lads. Keep it up. You want it louder? I think so. Well, whatever you were. Have you turned down? Down and dirty. I think if you just keep to your settings that we had at rehearsal, that just sounded a bit more polite to me. And uh, Pete, I wasn't getting your vocal in there. Oh, she got. Were you doing it? Okay. So I was missing, missing uh, Pete on the the oh, she the harmony thing. We just try that a little bit, just um, just just uh, just do a verse, yeah. So uh, do 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 that. I'm being so scared of me that they put you touch my hand and let you like And so, after all of that preamble, we finally come to the actual individual recording sessions themselves. This is where I will, in addition to going through the when, the what and the where, will also be dropping in the need to know of each of these classic rock and roll standards that they covered on the day they covered them. In total, we have five days in early March and two days in the early May of 1999, meaning that this album was technically recorded in a single week. The way Paul talks about it in interviews, you'd think it was one continuous week, but no, it was indeed broken up, and not for no reason, as the period in between saw the 25th anniversary re-release of Band on the Run, he was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and he organised slash performed at the concert for Linda. But still, these sessions are pretty unlike anything else we are used to on this podcast. Short, sharp and sweet sessions for McCartney are pretty rare and bar wildlife and ironically Chobber, he simply does not work this fast anymore. I mean, even with his more briskly recorded studio albums, it is still only a song per day or couple of days. And so for these sessions to churn out three or four or more, you can 
certainly gauge how unique the environment was. Also, for context, the next album, Driving Rain, will take five months to record. And the previous one, Flaming Pie, technically from start to finish, took around five years. Right, the first recording session for Run Devil Run began in earnest, bright and early, on Monday the 1st of March 1999. And with a lineup of Paul McCartney, David Gilmore, Mick Green, Ian Pace and Pete Wingfield, they began to play some rock and roll. And right on schedule, as per the work ethic that Paul is imposing, they finished a total of three songs. The first of which was a track called Fabulous by Charlie Grace. Let's go. When I always knew I was crazy for you How'd I know You'd thrill me so If this is love Well it's fabulous Your lips are close to mine I get chills up my spine And when they touch I thrill so much If this is love Fabulous. I read in a book about love and its charms, but I, I never knew till I held you in my arms. When I held you tight, well, I know, I know I'm right. It's only you. Why, yes, that song is rather fab and a very appropriate track for an ex-member of the Fab Four. This song was first performed by Charlie Gracie in 1957. It was his second and last appearance on the Billboard Top 40, besides his chart-topping Butterfly. Upon release, it sold over a million copies and made it to number 16 on the US Billboard, number 6 on the UK Singles Chart, and number 6 in Canada. It was written by Cal Munn, under the pseudonym of John Sheldon, and he was the chap who wrote Let's Twist Again for Chubby Checker. Being the first song from these sessions, it would make sense that Paul would have a strong memory to go along with it. When describing Fabulous, he said, One of them was called Fabulous by Charlie Grace. It's a little known song that I remember from a day at the fairground, Sefton Park Fair, where I had this little blue jacket on with a flap on the top breast pocket, and my mate had a fleck jacket too. I think mine was blue and his was white. It was just great. We thought we were looking cool, and we just walked around the fair, and I remember hearing this song playing off the waltzer. The great thing for me musically was the riff, dum dum diddly dum. That was the first one we actually did. It was the kickoff on the Monday morning. However, this isn't the first time Paul has ever played this song with a band. And no, I'm sadly not talking about Hamburg with the Beatles, since there is no record of them ever playing this tune. No. Unfortunately, this song with Paul goes back to 1980, to the much maligned Puggins Hall sessions that we covered on one of our recent Hot Hits and Cold Cuts episodes. Uh, This was the rehearsal sessions just prior to the ill-fated Japanese tour. They're really bad recordings with a really bad effort from everyone involved. But in regards to this episode, one of the things they did indeed cover was Fabulous. Luckily for you, I couldn't find any audio to go along with this. I mean, I'm actually quite glad I didn't. But yeah, 
The interesting thing about Fabulous is that whilst it was the first thing recorded for the sessions, it did not technically end up on the final track listing for the album. And for a while, it was considered to be the quote-unquote bonus track of Run Devil Run. It was only originally available as the B-side to the single version of No Other Baby, before then finding its way into semi-officiality with its inclusion in the Run Devil Run singles box set. The very coveted, very pricey Run Devil Run singles box set. Annoyingly, I've got a friend actually who has a spare copy of it, but he wants to sell it for an actual fair price, so I don't think I'm going to be of much use to him. Anyway, as soon as Run Devil Run made its way onto streaming, it became unofficially, officially a proper track on the album. It was just straight up included as the last track, but it, you know, it doesn't have bonus track written on it or anything like that. For the second song of the day and the second song of the sessions, they played a song by an artist that Paul had already paid tribute to on both London Town and covered on Chobber BCCR. That song is called I Got Stung and it's by none other than the King himself. Holy smoke, a land sakes alive, I never thought this could happen to me. I got stung by sweet honey bee. Oh, what a feeling come home over me. It started in my eyes, crept up to my head, flew to my heart. I was stung, did I run? I got stung. Of course, that there was Elvis Presley himself, taken from the 1958 recording. Like the majority of his songs, it was indeed written by someone else, this time by two of his most dependable writers, Aaron Schroeder and David Hill. Schroeder would eventually write 17 songs for Elvis, five of which would be number ones, and Hill wrote a couple of other Elvis tunes, as well as the number two hit for Pat Boone here in the UK, Speedy Gonzalez. I Got Stung was released as a double A-side single along with One Night and it reached number one in the UK where it stayed there for three weeks. It was one of a number of Elvis Presley songs to be re-released in the UK in 2005 when it went to number one again. However, despite all of this UK-based popularity, it didn't seem to have as much of an effect on the young McCartney as other songs did from this period. When speaking about I Got Stung, Paul said, It was not my favourite, it was not my favourite Elvis song, but I kept hearing, Holy smokes, land sakes alive, I never thought this would happen to me. That intro just kept grabbing me, and I thought, I'll do it a bit more raucous than Elvis. What I like so much about that quote is how it reinforces the idea that this is not Chobber, this is not just about the best songs, Paul's favourite songs, this is about songs that do generate specific memories for Paul that can take him back to a certain time. 
Also, I do know exactly what Paul is talking about in terms of that intro, because both when Elvis does it and when he does it, it's my favourite part of the song too. Also, you could say that Paul does a more raucous version of like 90% of the songs on Run Devil Run, but hey, who am I to correct Paul? Also, I do have to mention that the Beatles did do an impromptu version of this track during the Get Back sessions, though unfortunately I wasn't able to find a recording of it. It is logged though. Seemingly, a lot of the Nagra reel audio that used to be on YouTube in spades has once again been routinely scrubbed off for the time being. Then, last of all, they closed out the final day with another artist that we've heard Paul cover on an unnamed Russian album. This is Coquette by Fats Domino. About this song, Paul said, It's an obscure Fats Domino B-side. It's just me singing Fats. We tried fixing little bits of it because I thought, God, it's just too much like a pub singer. But we ended up going back to the early mix. It just has a feeling, you know. And Paul is totally correct there. This is an obscure Fats Domino B-side, the B-side to his whole Lala Lovin' single in 1956, though the song did get to number six on the US Billboard charts. I don't have any like English release info, but I'm probably sure that means it did not chart in the UK, which does mean it was at least obscure in the UK. But that isn't the half of it though, because as it turns out, Coquette is actually an old ass jazz standard that goes all the way back to the late 20s. And so this means that this song is part of the great rock and roll tradition of every hit being a cover of a cover of a cover taken from the cold dead hands of some old Delta bluesman whose name has been lost to the sands of time. But yeah, all in all, this song is mostly just a subtle way for Paul to simultaneously indulge his love of rock and roll as well as his love for Tin Pan Alley, Great Gatsby style vaudeville tunes. And when Paul talks about the fact that it's just him singing Fats, I really can't argue with him, as it's just ever so slightly just moddened or rocked up when compared to the original. Um, it's not, you know, it's not Blue Jean Bop, like I say. Again, I'm going to talk about it more the next episode. But when you've got someone who is as brilliant at impersonation and imitation as Paul McCartney, then sometimes a faithful cover can be warranted, you know? Moving on now to Tuesday the 2nd of March 1999 and the gang reconvened once again, this time to record just two songs. 
a 33% drop-off in productivity. The first of these songs was called Shake a Hand by none other than other obvious McCartney influence, Little Richard. Let's roll the tape! Shake a Hand is a 1953 song written by trumpeteer and band leader Joe Morris and was originally recorded for Faye Adams, whose version stayed at the number one spot on the US Billboard R&B chart for nine weeks. However, you did not just hear that version, and instead you heard the version that McCartney is far more likely to have come across, which is the version by none other than Little Richard that was featured on his 1958 album The Fabulous Little Richard, which also includes Richard's own version of Kansas City, clearly a seminal album for Paul. And according to my maths now, that's at least four Little Richard covers we've got now, right? There's this, Lucille, Kansas City slash Hey Hey Hey, and Long Tall Sally. The liner notes from the Run Devil Run album sleeve details just how far back this song goes back with Paul, though, and how music can be a fantastic keystone to base one's memory on. He details, There was this one jukebox in Hamburg, and we were working in Hamburg with the Beatles, that a few of the guys used to go to, this pool hall, and there was just one jukebox there, and it had a couple of old records that other jukeboxes didn't have. So, you'd visit that jukebox, it had Now or Never by Elvis, and it had Smoke Gets in Your Eyes by The Platters, which is gorgeous, I love that. But my favourite on that jukebox was Shake Your Hand by Little Richard, which, I never had that record, and I haven't to this day. I haven't got the record, but I, I remembered it. And I just thought, I love that so much, I'd love to do that one. So we did. It's kind of like a gospel song. So I did that pretty much like Little Richard did it. He taught me everything I knew. Paul, I taught you everything. It's true. It's true, Richard. Also, if anyone knows what bar Paul is exactly talking about in Hamburg, probably doesn't exist today, but oh well. If you have any idea what it may have been, please drop me an email at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Then we get to one of my low-key favourites from this album, everyone. Spoiler alert for the next episode much. This is Movie Mag by Carl Perkins. Now let me take you to the movie mag so I can hold your hand. Oh, it ain't that I don't like your house It's just that doggone man And I double bow behind the door And wait for Carl, I know Oh, climb up on old Becky's back And let's ride to the picture show I only see her once a week And that's when my work is through 
I break new ground the whole week long with my mindset straight on you. And I polished up my old horse, Beck, and she looks good, I know. So grind the phone, old Becky's back, and let's ride to the picture show. Now, won't you let me take you to the show so I can hold your hand? Oh, it ain't that I don't like your house, it's just that doggone man. And I double barrel behind the door, it waits for me, I know. So, Movie Mag is a 1955 rockabilly song written by Carl Perkins and released on Flip Records, a subsidiary of Sun Records, Elvis's label. His first ever single, Perkins had written the song at the age of 13. It was based on the true story of Perkins' girlfriend Maggie and their occasional trips to the movies at the weekends. Being the son of a poor sharecropper, Perkins did not have a car to drive Maggie to the picture show, so the pair rode on the back of his old mule, Becky. In fact, once again, let's listen to Paul talk about that now. Movie Mag is a Carl Perkins song, and as you may know, the Beatles were like really major fans of Carl, and we had a lot of his records really in our formative years, and there was another uh, artist who we'd sit around playing, and we did a lot of his songs actually. And Movie Mag was one I always liked. It's a crazy little song. But when I got to know Carl later on, I asked him about that. I said, what is that song about? And Carl was such a country dude that he actually picked cotton when he was a kid. You know, he's from a very poor family. So he'll tell you stories. And actually, this story is about him trying to take this girl, Maggie, to the movies. And he's to, he wants to take her on this horse of his called Becky. And it turns out it's a mule. And it's a real horse. He said, well, Paul, you know, when I was a kid, we had a mule called Becky. And it turns out this is like his, this is a real story. He had a girlfriend called Maggie, and he did polish up old Becky, and they rode on Becky's back to the movies. So I just thought, that's just so great and so wild. I mean, I loved Carl telling me his stories. He had, some, he had a wealth of great stories he'd tell. And they just go back just that bit further than I go back. I mean, they go back into the cotton fields. My dad was a cotton salesman, but we didn't go back to the fields, you know. So, that's, that's cool. so um, I loved that song just because of it, just because it was such a close connection with Carl. And when we came to do it, we had the full band in. Then it was like, oh, maybe we don't need piano. So then Pete went off. And it was like, maybe we don't need all the guitars. So I think Dave went off. It was like, maybe we don't need any guitars. So then... I tell a lie. The only time I got off bass was to play acoustic guitar on that track. That's actually the only time. So that's what happened. The, the whole band, we were starting calling ourselves the Dwindlers. Because we were like dwindling away. It was just me and the drummer left, you know. Funnily enough, it sounds the most instant, but it was probably the most worked on that. But I wanted to do it because it's kind of a homage to Carl. And, and I love the song. Mm-hmm. And it's funny, Mick, who's a London boy, you know, Mick Green, he says, what's all this then? Becky's bike. Climb up on old Becky's bike. No, it's on Becky's back. So what is she taking her the pictures on the bike? It's no, a mule. <laughs> of course, Perkins was not just an influence of Paul's, but they were also collaborators at one time, with Perkins joining Paul in Montserrat for eight days where they recorded Get It for the Tug of War album. This is also where Perkins wrote the song My Old Friend, a.k.a. the song where Perkins predicted Now and Then. So, considering how close he and Paul were, as well as the fact that Perkins had only just recently passed away in the January of 1999 at the start of the year, it makes total sense that Paul would do a tribute to him in this way. Very much in the same way that he did a tribute to Elvis the year he died with name and address. 
Also, in the March of that same year, at the notorious overdue Rock and Roll Hall of Fame ceremony, Paul played Blue Suede Shoes, again in tribute to Perkins. And so, when time came to record this album, it makes sense that he would want to do something a little more obscure and personal. And just before we move on, once again, I do have to bring up the dreaded Puggins Hall rehearsal sessions that I'm so glad I actually did cover a couple of episodes ago, because we have another song that they performed there. They did Movie Mag just before they went to Japan. The recordings are absolutely awful. Again, I'm not going to play them on here. You can go find them on YouTube by looking up the Jimmy McCulloch fan page for the entirety of the 1980 Puggins Hall rehearsals, actually, where they do a load of old rock and roll standards. 20 Flight Rock, Blue Moon of Kentucky, Sheik of Araby, Johnny B. Good, you know, all of those standards. Though I do find it odd, just before we move on, that this is a Carl Perkins song that the Beatles never played. I mean, they may have done it and it's been unrecorded, but nothing official. I mean, between George and Paul, I don't know how there's a, a Perkins song the Beatles never covered, but oh well. Pressing ever onwards, we come to Wednesday the 3rd of March 1999 for the third day of the recording for Run Devil Run. The first song they attempted that, that uh, attempted, the first song they completed that day was called Honey Hush. Now, Honey Hush is an old blues song written by Big Joe Turner, which was recorded by himself in 1953 in New Orleans, Louisiana, and released that August by Atlantic Records. It was a number one song on Billboard's Rhythm and Blues charts for eight weeks. Oh, who am I kidding? We both know you'd rather hear Paul talk about Honey Hush. Let's roll the tape. Honey Hush is a song that really has very, very early memories for me. I remember that John, Lennon and Stuart Sutcliffe had a, an art school flat, an apartment, in a place called Gambia Terrace that looks out onto Liverpool Cathedral. Big, amazing place. And it was just a bare flat with a mattress on the floor, you know, art school kind of thing, you know, a little ashtray. And that was it. And I, it was one of the first times, because I was a bit younger than John Stu, one of the first times I ever stayed over, stayed out all night, me and George. George was even younger than me, so, and he still is. Um, he keeps telling me that as he writes that on all my birthday cards. And you're still nine months older than me. It's, and it, so it was a really great experience for us kids as we were then to stay over at someone's flat, man, you know, not stay sleeping at home. I remember waking up in the morning, like, oh God, you know, after having virtually no sleep, but it didn't matter, it was so cool. And like in this cold little apartment in Liverpool. 
And there was just a dance set record player on the floor beside the mattress. And the first thing he put on was this Johnny Burnett record. And um, it was Honey Hush. And I loved it so much. Come into this house, it's the ball at yakety yak. And his brother Dorsey Burnett does a great solo, you know. So Mick Green really knew this song and really was up for doing it. I think it was one morning when I was a little bit tired and confused. And he said, What are you going to do now then? I said, Got to be Honey Hush. So we, we blew the cobwebs away with that one. This was one of the ones, so I hadn't been able to get one of the lines, one of the lyrics. But I thought, while I was writing it down, well, I'll just write it down phonetically, and probably I'll find a lyric sheet or something. Well, I never did. So I, I, I pulled it out. I was going to do it. I thought, oh, I never found out the real words. I thought, well, I'll, I'll sing it phonetically then. So there's one of the lines in it. So, you be living this way. I ain't coming back no more. And I, I mean, I'm thinking. It's something, I sound like I'm singing something like, I'm li you've been living in Spain, or be leaving this space or something, I don't know, and I ain't coming back no more. So I don't know what we do about that. The li real lyrics, nothing like it, it's, it's completely different. But it, it was actually great fun, in the spirit of the album, to just not even care what the lyric was. You're living in Spain, I ain't coming back. Mumble, baby. Now, I'm not gonna lie, folks. I'm a little tempted to overanalyze the lyrics of this song and the song choice, because you know, it's all it's all about a, a woman doing a man's bidding, yada, 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 that kind of thing. But then when you like read lyrics like, turn off the waterworks, baby, they don't move me no more. When I leave this time, I ain't coming back no more. And to me, like kind of like tonally, those lyrics don't fit with this particular type of album. I mean, maybe Paul can separate the art from the artist in that way. But I don't know maybe a different song choice would have been more appropriate. I mean, it is one of my favourite songs on the album, and I'm clearly overthinking too much, but it was worth musing on. On a slightly brighter note, though, I am happy to report that we are going to be breaking from the oft-forgotten No Beatles rule on this podcast, as Honey Hush is indeed one of the few songs from this album that the Beatles did actually play and was actually recorded. As Paul has said... These are obscure tracks that the Fabs never really got around to, but this is not taken from the early black and white Hamburg days. No, this is taken directly from the Get Back sessions, where so much material was covered that they were bound to get to some obscure tracks at some point. Playing Honey Hush, ladies and gentlemen, The Beatles! Okay.
following on from one of the most energetic yet perhaps slightly inappropriate songs for the album, we come to one of the more slower, solemn songs that is entirely appropriate. This is Ricky Nelson's Lonesome Town. There's a place where lovers go to cry their troubles away, and they call it Lonesome Town, where the broken heart stays. You can buy a dream or two. To last you all through the years And the only price you pay Is a heart full of tears Going down to Lonesome Town Where the broken heart stays Lonesome Town was originally written by one Thomas Baker Knight, whose other credits include the hit track The Wonder of You by Elvis and Don't All the Girls Get Prettier at Nighttime by Mickey Gilly. Both of those went to number one. Now, the version you heard there was by Ricky Nelson and that became a hit single in the US, reaching number seven on the Billboard Hot 100 and number 15 on the R&B chart in 58. Of course, it is no coincidence that Paul would choose a song with this title at this point in his life, is it, folks? Of course, he's only a couple of years away from writing and releasing Lonely Road. So with this, we have a lonely road and a lonely town, and soon we're going to have a whole lonesome metropolitan area if trends carry on. But yeah, I don't think anyone missed the connection between the lyrics of this song and the passing of Linda McCartney. This connection would be forever sealed when Paul would take to the stage at the concert for Linda in the next month, uh, April of 99, where he would return to the stage for the first time, performing for the very first time since her passing, and doing so with this very song. This inherent connection with the late Mrs McCartney was also not lost on interviewer Laura Gross, who, like all of us, was just too sad to not comment on the whole situation. Paul replied... Well, it's got to be a bit sad lonesome town because of my circumstances now, you know. When I first heard it, it was just a nice ballad, you know. It was a ballad for some lonesome people, you know, and that was okay. Ricky Nelson did it, so I always liked the song, and I always thought, one of these days I might do that. Might try and get around to doing it. Actually, it's funny, what happened was, I got into the studio fully intending to do it like Ricky Nelson, but then I thought, you know, his version's so good, and if I do, there's a place where lovers go, which is how he did it, I thought, well... It's just going to be a complete remake. In certain cases, I don't mind a remake. But with this one, I thought, no. So I thought, what I'll do is I'll take it higher. And as you just heard there in that shockingly faithful and accurate recreation of the dialogue between Paul and Laura Gross, Paul really doesn't spend all that much time addressing the whole Linda angle of it. And the whole thing is handled very much in Paul's classically uh, professional media style. 
it is a shame he doesn't go into it further. I mean, in every single interview where the death of Linda comes up, he really doesn't want to spend all that much time talking about it. And that's probably because it is one of those topics that likely would break the veneer of, you know, the media man, Paul McCartney. It's it's too risky a topic, you know? Of course, though, with Paul being Paul, he does bring it all the way back around to another classic him-ism in the way that he once again starts to talk about the Beatles. He says, And that's exactly how we used to work in the Beatles. An idea would come up, someone would go, That's good. And then, you know, we didn't take weeks to go through the bureaucracy of it. It's a good idea, so we use it. No time. You go, we better, we're running out of time. So we did. And I think it worked out great. The fact that, you know, just a little idea like that would work so well. And the last track of that day would go on to become the title one. No prizes for guessing this one, folks. Let's have another little quick listen to Run Devil Run. Run Devil Run, the angels having fun, making winners out of sinners, better leave me boys done. When you get through, if coming after you, listen to what I'm saying to you. Run Devil Run. My swimming and my family and my cold and the death didn't read it by the light of a guaranteed lamp. This only rule that we're missing on the line. Got to spread the word to anybody she can find. You can hear screaming and it's never not a day. This is what you did to keep the demons away. Run, never run. The evil never fun. Make it win and die. See the devil leave me for the thug. When you get through, he'll be coming after you. Listen what I'm saying to you. Run, run, never run. A brother and a sister pick the team. Despite being the title of the record, Run Devil Run, it is not a cover, but instead the first of the original tracks from the sessions, and Paul is really starting out strong here. I mean, I don't think he has to try too hard to convince everyone else in the room, in the studio, to play along with this, but still, you know, you debut with your best, and this is obviously undoubtedly the greatest of the original tracks from the sessions. And because of it, everyone involved gets to have their name on an original Paul McCartney credit, which is always nice on the old resume. In terms of fitting it onto the final album, I will admit it does somewhat feel like a track that was written with a more modern sound in mind uh, and a more modern production in mind, rather than something that was truly brought back from 1954. Like I, I, I really can't. I mean. I mean, of course, it's not the most complicated song ever with the most complicated or inspired chord progressions or anything, and I'm sure conceivably someone could have written it in the 50s, but compared to the other two, this one does feel the most modern, and I'm not saying it harms the song in any way, and if anything, this song might be the most successful thing on the entire album. I'm just saying that despite how amazing of a... I'm just saying that despite how much of an amazing song it is, thematically it might be a little bit false. That's all. Speaking of modern Paul songs, though, the story of how this one came to be is very much in keeping with the writing process associated with several songs from the Flaming Pie sessions, in the sense that his inspiration is directly tied to a family holiday. Paul details here. And then I thought, well, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll keep going, you know, and see if anything else comes. 
And I was actually in Atlanta. Uh, my son James wanted to go around to, down to the funky area. You know, he wants to always go to the funky area of town. Me too. And just walking around the block. And people saying, yo, Bob, right, man, yeah. And it was nice, you know, good, friendly atmosphere, nice and low-key. So I'm enjoying it, nice afternoon. We came across this shop, which is like one of these sort of voodoo shops where you get cures for everything, all your ailments, you know. Being in the south, I think they're a bit more prevalent than up in the north. Anyway, um, I was looking in the window, and there's these fascinating things in the window. There's like bath salts that you put in your bath, and it gets rid of all your demons. And there's like incense that you can burn, they'll get rid of, you know, it's, it's that, the whole shop was dedicated to that kind of thing. So I was looking in the shop window and I saw this bottle of bath salts called Run Devil Run. I thought, oh wow, I thought, and I realized what it was, I thought, that's a good title. That's a title for a song, Run Devil Run, you know. So I, I was actually going back on holiday after that. So while I was on holiday, I started thinking of the words for Run Devil Run. And it came quite easy, you know, I thought, well, working backwards, Run Devil Run, the angel's having fun, making winners out of sinners, better leave before he's done. When he gets through, he'll be coming after you, so listen to what I'm telling you. Run, devil, run, you know. So it came quite easy, the chorus. And then I was actually out sailing, and I did the verses out sailing. Which is nothing to do with sailing, it's all about a swamp in Alabama. But you know, your imagination's free to roam when you're on holiday like that. I thought it sounded, it had a little, like, Linda feeling. You know, that's amazing, yeah, I've thought that. A few of the harmonies on the album, because she didn't record on it, she was done more recently. Uh, there's a spooky thing. It's like she's singing on it. Yo! Well, I have no problem with that. It just must be something about my voice and her voice and how it used to match and living so close together. I think, you know, you grow into each other a bit, you know. So I, I thought that just recently. I was like, oh, she's singing backing. Yeah! Magic. Ah, yes. Another classic example of McCartney doing that classy McCartneyism where he claims that something is really easy and simple, even though it, it's godly to us mortals. It's like the same thing he did with Let It Be in the McCartney 321 series with Rick Rubin, how he explained that song. And again, for Paul to think that coming up with such a wordy tongue tire of a lyric as Run Devil Run as something simple and easy is just another example of how incredible and incredibly out there Paul's mind really is. Also folks, do not worry, I know Paul may have dabbled in heroin in the 60s once or twice, but don't worry, he's not actually going to be smoking the bath salts. Uh, when he says he's going to be using them, thankfully, he means that he's going to be using them in a bath, and we don't have to see Macca eating someone's face on TMZ. Moving ever onwards, and we come to Thursday the 4th of March 1999, and everyone's back again in the studio. Everyone's opening another packet of biscuits, putting on the tea again. The strict working regime is still on course. And the first song they did that day is actually the first one that I recognised when I first came to this album. Please ignore my ignorance. But yes, this is Party. Chicken in the middle of the room, let's have a party. 
regard, this is party and not party party, as we'd have another issue entirely. But yeah, several of you out there probably know that song by the title Let's Have a Party by Wanda Jackson. But originally, the 1957 song, written by Jesse May Robinson, was recorded by Elvis Presley for the movie Loving You. And that was released as a single in the UK under the title simply of Party, which peaked at number two in the UK singles chart. Then Wanda Jackson comes along and records her version for her first album, Wanda Jackson, which was released in 58. The song was released as a single by Jackson in 1960, and it entered the UK chart on the 1st of September that year, spending eight weeks there, reaching number 32. It also reached number 37 on the Billboard Hot 100 in 1960. As with Honey Hush, there was an issue with the accuracy of the lyrics for the song, as Paul details here once again. Let's have a party. That was from uh, Elvis did it, I think in Loving You, the second movie. It's just a great song. And there were words again. As kids, we could never quite get the words. And there was no authority you could consult. It was just us, thankfully. It was nice that it was just us. But there was, I never kissed a bear. And then I always thought he said, I never kiss a goo. We didn't know what a goo was, but that's what it sounded like. So we were always doing, never kissed a bear, never kissed a goo. Like a chicken chicken in the middle of the room, let's have a party. So when it came to it, I kept singing, never kissed a goo. And all the guys went, what is that? We looked it up. And it said, never kissed a goon, which I don't think is a lot more sensible either. I never kissed a bear, I never kissed a goon. Well, I'm not so sure about the story, the derivation of that. Again, some great archivists will be able to tell us what just happened there. But I just like the madness of the words, you know. And then Laura Gross goes, did you keep the goo? And Paul replies, no, it came out as goon, never kissed a bear, and that's true. I've never kissed a goon either, and that's equally as true. So what more do you want? Now, I'm not sure if this is bullshit here. I'm not sure. I'm sure Paul may be telling his own version of the truth as as far as he believes it. Maybe he did come across the lyrics of Goon first. But again, Paul is the master of media and spin, so there's always a doubt there. I mean, of course, the internet was in its infancy back in 99, but still, you know, Paul is deep in the music world with access to all manner of channels and archives and resources that regular folk could have only dreamed of, and he couldn't find the lyrics for an Elvis Presley song. Hmm. Because I've looked on loads of websites, right, in preparation for this particular moment on this podcast, and apparently the original line is in reference to a raccoon, um, and it's obviously, I never kissed a bear, I never kissed a... Well, you can work it out. And... Of course, that original lyric, it's, I'm, I'm sure, you know, it's a bear in the first bit and a raccoon in the next one. There's an animal theme there, but obviously there's huge racial overtones there and the implications are very inappropriate, even in the late 90s. And so much in the same way that Paul changed the lyrics of the song Atlantic Ocean to be less centred around the Atlantic slave trade, I think what's actually happened is, is that Paul has been very wise and cautious and removed any objectionable material from this project. And moving on from that rather swiftly, the final song that day was the second of the McCartney originals, titled What It Is. You are what it is that makes the world.
folks the greatest compliment i can give this song is that i genuinely couldn't tell that paul had written it when i first heard the album am i saying that this seamlessly fits into the annals and the halls of the great rock and roll standards no not quite what i'm saying is is that paul was able perfectly able to replicate the sound of an obscure by the book by the numbers bog standard rock and roll tune from the 1950s and i'm not even saying that in a negative light just that rather suitably and appropriately unremarkably paul can replicate the sound of his memories you know whilst this might not be a classic unlike the title track this does fit the theme perfectly and most importantly fit on the album effortlessly and again, I'm not sure if this was ever intentional or not, but rather than just writing a song that sounds like it could have been from the 50s or like making a song have a 50s sound, Paul rather deftly has written a song where it sounds like he's covering something else. Again, it might just be me projecting there, but that's how it comes across. Paul showed a great deal of self-awareness and humility when talking about this song, and whilst he put it in the context of struggling to write an authentic rocker, he also, in many ways, he was kind of mindfully, quote-unquote, checking his own privilege before that was even a thing. He said, It's actually very hard to write rock and roll. You talk to most songwriters, they say, it's easier to write a ballad, although perhaps sometimes they seem harder to write. It's difficult to get things sounding genuine in rock and roll, because you're not black, you don't live in the South, you're not some poor guy on a terrace with an old blues guitar, you know? So... That's the difficulty, you know. You're not experiencing all the stuff that it came from, you know. But, you know, I love it so much that I can I can try my own way to recreate all of that from when I was a kid and my admiration for these blues rock and roll people, you know. Fortunately for Paul, love is one of the great themes of rock and roll. And so this song also benefits from being what might be the last of the Linda McCartney love songs written whilst she was still here. Paul details... I actually wrote that for Lynn when she was still alive. So it was a nice song to sing to her. So that had that kind of, you know, sentimental attachment to me like that. That's the only story about that song, really. I wrote it for her. Then, on Friday the 5th of March, for the final day of that first working week, the original lineup of this band got back together to polish off a few more songs. And they started off with the second song that I was previously kind of aware of in some way before this episode began and that is brown-eyed handsome man arrested on charges of unemployment he was sitting in the witness stand the judge's wife called up the district attorney she said free that brown-eyed man if you watch 
your job, you better free that brown-eyed man. Flying across the desert in a TWA, I saw a woman walk across the sand. She'd been walking 30 miles en route to Bombay to meet a brown-eyed handsome man. Her destination was a brown-eyed handsome man. Way back in history, 3,000 years, in fact, ever since the world began. There's been a whole lot of good women shedding tears over a brown-eyed handsome man. It's a lot of trouble with a brown-eyed handsome man. Okay, I do tell a lie. When I first put this album on, oh god, this is so embarrassing. I was I was looking through the track listing, and I distinctly remember thinking that it was odd that Paul was covering "Brown Eyed Girl" by Van Morrison on this album of, of like old fifties rockers. But yeah, no, I was I was very much mistaken. In, instead, it was "Brown Eyed Handsome Man," which is, of course is an old Chuck Berry tune from September nineteen fifty six, as the B side to the track. Too Much Monkey Business. It was also included on Berry's 1957 debut album, After School Session. Of course, Berry himself is one of the de facto Beatles influences, and so it would make sense that he would be included on this roster for this album. What I do like, though, is how Paul picked a song that wasn't one of the two dozen Johnny B. Good style tunes that he could have picked in its place. Though, Unlike on John Lennon's rock and roll album, this inclusion was likely out of admiration and not contractual obligation. There is a Buddy Holly version of Brown Eyed Handsome Man, but being that it was only ever released in the UK posthumously, Paul would only have been aware of the Berry version growing up. Also, seeing as how I spent a lot of the uh, episode already talking about lyrical changes and omissions, I should point out that for some reason, Paul chooses to skip the entire first verse of this song, the one about being arrested on charges of unemployment and being in the witness stand. Maybe Paul didn't know about that version. Maybe he never sung it. This could be like a, a young John Lennon-esque lyrical mess-up. I don't know. Of course, though, the standout element of this track is the addition to the band. There is another member that is seen, uh, well, sorry, heard nowhere else on this album. Yes, accordion player Chris Hall has a credit on this song. And honestly, he must either be famous for his live playing solely because he only has like two or three credits after this album and none before. So, you know, he's a bit of a mystery, a bit of a misanoma. But hey, if you're going to have one of your very few credits for your annoying as fuck weird owl ass instrument, uh, then having it be on a Paul McCartney song on a Paul McCartney album... Isn't that bad, is it? But yeah, Chris Hall popped in on the final day to do Brown-Eyed Handsome Man and nothing else. Gosh, it must have been a bit, a bit awkward to leave. Uh, maybe he was sat in the control booth just watching happily with a cup of tea, but you'd definitely want to be on other songs, wouldn't you? Especially the next one, because, oh my gosh, the following one that they tackled might be one of not only the best covers of these sessions, but one of the best covers Paul has ever done, and that is No Other Baby. I don't want no other baby but you. 
This song was originally by a group called Dickie Bishop and the Sidekicks, but the version that Paul will have first heard and the version you just heard then was by a group called The Vipers. Once again, I'm just going to let Paul explain it because he'll do it better than myself. No Other Baby was a strange track because I didn't have a record of it. I didn't know who'd recorded it or who'd written it, but I knew I loved the song from late 50s. And so that was one I pulled out of my envelope, said, anyone know this? And I said, no, really nobody knew it. I barely knew it. But I just remembered it. I'd remember the verses. It's such a simple song. And I'd always wanted to do it. We used to do it at sound checks, actually, on the, on, the, on the tour. We used to do it. I found out lately that it was recorded by an English group who were like a skiffle group. It was before rock and roll for us here. And it, they were called the Vipers. They were like a favorite little skiffle group of ours. Funny though, I was talking to George Martin on the phone the other day, and I said, I was telling him about No Other Baby, I said, we even did this song. I said, I have no idea who even did it. I've, I've since found out it was by the Vipers, you know. And I suddenly realized when I was talking to George, I said, wait a minute, George, you recorded the Vipers? He said, yes, I did. I said, well, this song's called No Other Baby. How's it go? He said, well, I said, I don't want no other. He said, oh, yes, I remember it. So he turned up, talk about coming full circle. George actually recorded the original Thing. I knew yeah. I knew that song, and I couldn't think from where. Yeah, I think. But how'd you know the words if you couldn't get? I just remembered them. You know, I don't want no other baby view. That's easy. Isn't he doing a couple of verses? I just happened to remember them. Of course, no other baby was the only single. It was the lead single for the Run Devil Run album. The ultimate decision by Paul and MPL to issue it as the only single. I'm definitely going to discuss that with TJ. I don't want people to think that I think this is a bad song. Far from it. Au contraire, I absolutely adore this track. It was one of the two songs that got me into the album. That being said, though, I don't think it's probably the best way to, to sell this album in terms of like someone picking this up off a shelf randomly. But yeah, I am sure there are many of you out there already who are writing in right now to tell me why I'm exactly wrong there. Still, talking about the song totally in a vacuum, though, it is still very powerful. It's still very impactful, even without all of the provenance of Paul singing it after Linda's death. You know, it's still a hell of a performance. It's still an incredibly enrapturing vocal. And I know that both me and TJ next week are going to probably confess to having a couple of manly tears roll down our cheek every once in a while whilst it plays. Anyway, even if I don't think that this was the best song for Paul to promote as a single, he certainly still did. And he performed it a total of five times across five of his biggest promotional appearances in support of this album. Now, just before we move on to the next song, I did a little bit of digging before this episode. And it turns out that during his first world tour in 1990, he actually performed this track at a sound check 
And look, it's not the highest fidelity audio, but we have the audio nonetheless. And play the clip, Johnny. Let's have a listen. This might not be that significant, but I believe that is the only track from these sessions that Paul ever performed solo, especially solo with another band at another recording before the Run Devil Run album. I might be wrong, I'm going to keep doing some digging, but this is one of the best comparative bits of audio we've had in a while. And so, after about three or four takes max of No Other Baby, they then moved on to the next song of that day. And this one has a title that is very Beatles-esque indeed. Now that I think about it, I'm sure it was a good sign for Paul. The song is called She Said Yeah, and it sounds like this. That was She Said Yeah by Larry Williams, the B-side to his single Bad Boy. Of course, the Beatles famously covered Bad Boy, with it appearing on Beatles 4 in the States, and a collection of 
Beatles Golden Oldies here in the UK. And I believe Dizzy Miss Lizzy and Slow Down were both Larry Williams songs, so he's clearly a key Beatle figure. However, this is a B-side from the 1950s. It could not be more throwaway, and so it wasn't written by Larry Williams himself and was instead written by Roddy Jackson and Sonny Bono, who is credited for some reason as Don Christie. When discussing this song, Paul does another of my favourite McCartney-isms, which is to, like, get a little dig into the Rolling Stones for no reason. I'd love to let him speak for himself here, but I'll do my best in his stead. He said, She said, yeah, it's a Larry Williams song. Me and John particularly loved Larry Williams. Bernie Maroney. John did slow down. I was always going to do She Said Yeah, but I never got round to it until now. I just loved it, and I remember turning Mick Jagger onto it in my house in London in the 60s. I was living on my own. All of the other guys were kind of married, but I had a cool little record collection, and you know, you're living on your own, and that's very important. I used to get 45 cent from America. I'd get 10 records a week sent over. Soul stuff and what was charting in America. George had a good chess collection. He had lots of stacks and chess, and we pulled our resources. And we all played it to each other. And I remember having Mick up and saying, listen to this one, man. And I think the Stones did a version of it. I remember listening to it and thinking, nah, I can still do it. So yeah, according to Paul, not only did he introduce Mick Jagger to this song that the Stones later recorded, but according to his own holy self, their version wasn't definitive enough to put him off from doing it himself. And then, to finish off the final day, rather shockingly, they did what would become the most obviously, like, old-school production-style track. I thought they would have done this first in my head. This was the first thing they recorded, but that could not be further from the truth. This is Blue Jean Bop. Blue Jean, baby, with your big blue eyes. Don't want you looking at other guys Got to make you give me one more chance I can't keep still, so baby, let's dance Well, the blue jean bop is the bop for me Well, it's the bop, it's a definitely dungaree You dip your hip, free your knee Playing on your heel, baby, one, two, three Well, the blue jean Blue jean bobber, baby, blue jean bobber Blue jean bobber, baby, blue jean bobber Baby, won't you bob with jean Bop, you can't bop This was the title track of the debut studio album by American rockabilly singer and backing band Gene Vincent and his Blue Caps. The song itself was written by Gene Vincent and one Hal Levy. Levy was a pretty small-time songwriter, really, only really known for his work with Vincent, but he does have credits for writing with Nat King Cole and Peggy Lee, so he wasn't like a nobody. But yeah, Gene Vincent recorded the original version. That came out on the 13th of August, 1956, which, if you remember, was that key year of influence on a young Paul McCartney, between the years of 14 to 15. I also mentioned earlier, Blue Jean Bop was the exception to the rule when it came to the modern recording style for the album. 
Clearly, it was the end of the week and they wanted to try something new and a little bit fun. And if the little quote from earlier in the episode didn't explain it enough for you, then I'm going to let this rather little amusing clip from Paul himself fill in the blanks for you. Blue Jean Bob was off an album that we had um, in Liverpool of Gene Vincent's, where the big hit was Bebop Alula. Blue Jean Bob wasn't quite such a big hit, but it was one we loved. And it's got this nice intro, which, uh, you know, Blue Jean Bob, with your big blue eyes, da 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 I can't keep still, so baby, let's dance world of blue. And it goes, like a lot of rock and roll songs used to do that, you know. And it's got this echo, pop, 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 really popping. And in actual fact, you know, having done a, a bit of that uh, in the week, I realised that they actually used to write for the echo. Well, it's the bop, 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 that's bop, a delay echo. That sends it. So you, if you go, lovely day, today, and all languid things, it doesn't work. You've got to pop the echo. You know, I'm a pop, you're a beat, you're a baby, pop. So you realise that's why all the songs were written like that, you know. So it's great just sort of rediscovering all this stuff you kind of knew. And on Blue Jean Bar, I thought, no, we just, I just want that echo, over-the-top echo sound. So we used it there. But on a lot of the other songs, there's kind of a more modern sound on them. But the songs themselves are like old-fashioned. We just, you know, messed them around. I mean, I love the lyrics of this album. They're really nice. Blue Jean Bob's got, you know, uh, Can't Keep Still, So Baby, Let's Dance, Dip Your Hip, Free Your Knee. You know, I like this stuff. It's kind of good, good words, I think. Some of them are really brilliant, clever lyrics. Yeah. Free Your Knee. <laughs> free Your Knee. Well, Free Your Knee is a line out of Blue Jean Bob. And it's actually a dance instruction, but when you say to someone, you know, Free Your Knee, they go, what? You think about it, it's like, you know, dip your hip, free your knee, wiggle on your baby, one, two, three. It's, um, it's like shake it, baby, or something, you know, free your mind, free your knee, free yourself. So that's why I like it. It's a nice little phrase. As we know, folks, Paul is a big fan of 20 Flight Rock by Eddie Cochran, but he'd already done that for Chobber, and so it shouldn't be a shock to anyone that he would choose to do a very similar song on this album too, or... It could just be that every single song from 1956 sounded like this. Who knows? Then, after almost a two-month break, on Tuesday the 4th of May 1999, Paul and the gang, though this time with Dave Mattex on drums and Geraint Watkins on keys, they got together once more. Though, rather oddly, for these last two days of recording, things slowed down to a pace where it only resulted in just one song per day. Now, this may just be a case whereby they only needed one or two songs to finish off the album, or that things had just been messed around with and not recorded, or recorded and not used. You know, they'd become cold cut type tracks, or maybe they just didn't jam and groove the same way. They weren't as productive. I don't know. But as it stands, the final album has just two songs from these sessions. Although, I do see Watkins and Mattax's names on the credits for Lonesome Town, a session that I don't think they were present for, so maybe some of this second session work was more like pickups for a film, or like small reshoots, and there was a lot of the all-important, and sometimes hushed-up, overdub work. And so, for this penultimate session, what was the one song they worked on? Well, of course, they were going to go back to Elvis at some point, weren't they? This is All Shook Up. 
Well, I bless my soul, but what's wrong with me? I'm itching like a man on a fuzzy tree. My friends say I'm acting wild as a bug. I'm in love. I'm all shook up. My hand is shaky and my knees are weak I can't seem to stand on my own two feet Who do you think of when you have such luck? I'm in love, I'm all shook up Well, please don't ask me what's on my mind I'm a little mixed up, gonna feel fine When I'm near the girl that I love best of course, no one here is surprised that, that there is another Elvis song on this album. I mean, of course there is. This track was originally written by Otis Blackwell, who also wrote Return to Sender for Elvis, as well as Great Balls of Fire for Jerry Lee Lewis. And it was first recorded by David Hill in 1956. Though, importantly, in 1957... Elvis would get his hands on it. And, well, it was a pretty big one, folks. When Paul was at the age of 15, again, that same kind of important, impressionable time, the same week as his birthday, no less, actually, All Shook Up went to the number one spot, both here in the UK and the US, where it stayed at the top of Billboard for four weeks and eventually going double platinum. In interviews, it's clear that this song has a very special place in McCartney's heart. And like so many songs, it does have the power to conjure up a very specific pinpoint memory for him. He details, I had a mate of mine, who I still know, called Ian James, and he was my best mate. And we used to wander around all these fairgrounds, you know, hoping, thinking that the girls would come flooding to us, because they never took any notice of us. I remember feeling bad one day, me and Ian, it's like... You know, it's teenage blues. It's like, what are we going to do, man? So he said, we'll go back to his place. And he lived in the Dingle, whereby round where Ringo lived. This little terrace house, his granny's house. And we went there, and he had all shook up by Elvis. He said, just put that on. Well, after we put that on, I swear, the blues had all gone. The headache had gone, and we were like brand new people. And so, you know, I love that song so much for just being able to do that. Of course, the irony now is that so much of Paul's music literally has the ability to do that for me. I have distinctive memories of Happy With You literally putting a big smile on my face when I was feeling bad one day. So that power has passed on to Paul in spades. Also, just before we do the final, final session, I am pleased to say that I have another Beatles clip that I can play for y'all. Once again, taken from the Get Back Sessions... This is the Beatles doing All Shook Up. Oh, well, the best soul I was along with me. I'm tipping like a man on a cup of tea. I'd say a man without a lot of the bug. I'm in love. I Oh. 
Now, I would never complain about my workload for this podcast, but I did have to download a 10-hour clip to find out that song and uh, trim it. Oh, the things I do for this podcast day. But hey, not to worry, as we have now arrived at Wednesday the 5th of May 1999, a.k.a. the final session for the Run Devil Run project. No idea if it was titled that at this point, but hey, the important thing is, we've made it. And... The last of the last, the final thing they recorded was indeed the third of the McCartney originals. And that song was called Try Not To Cry. Sometimes I'm right, sometimes I'm wrong. How can I help it if I don't know the song? All day I try to be a man. Help me to do it, show me the plan. I want to enjoy being alive Don't want to leave before I arrive I like to sing, I sing along How can I do it if I don't know the song? Again, what could be more McCartney-esque than to end a cover session than with one of your own original numbers? Clearly, Paul had caught the rock and roll bug from the original sessions and either wrote fresh or finished off another song that would bring the total to three, making it a very definitive statement on the final album. And hey, if they were going to squeeze one more song on, why not squeeze on one of his? Plus, it also doesn't hurt to add one more songwriting credit, because, you know, at this point it is the equivalent of printing an extra few thousand dollars solely into his own pocket without worrying about paying those pesky royalties to the original songwriters and just because I want to use as much of the original Run Devil Run interview as possible I'm gonna end this segment now with another delightfully goofy and charming McCartney moment where he describes how he taught the band how to play this particular song let's hear it Johnny some songs come like from an idea and this one came from a very specific idea. When you're mixing a record, it's really good if you can get, like, let's say, a lot of bass drum through. And sometimes the words go over the bass drum. So you've got to favour the words so you don't get enough bass drum. So I thought, ah, oh, I know. Just as a little exercise, I'll work, I'll work out a song. It was actually not the bass drum, it was the snare drum. I'll work out a song that avoids the offbeat. So it was like, sometime I'm right, sometime I'm wrong. I put the song in the gaps. Yeah? So that was like the whole idea of the song, and I, I put some words, you know, filled out all the words. Then the chorus didn't bother with that, the chorus just went to a chorus. But that was the whole idea. So consequently, when I came in, all I could tell the guys was, well, it goes like this, you know, you go, 
I said, and I'm sitting there, you know, I'm supposed to be a good songwriter. I'm saying, I've got this song, guys, and I'm thinking, God, they're just going to laugh at me. It goes like this. Sometimes, sometimes I'm right, sometimes I'm wrong. How can I do it? I don't know that song. All day I try, and I'm looking at them, they're going, mm-hmm. They're trying to look interested, you know. This is, this is good, Paul. And I think they're thinking, ooh, tilt. <laughs> you know, something drastically wrong's happened here. Sometimes I'm right, punk. <laughs> but, uh, and then it worked out, you know, and, it, and they all saw what I was trying to do, and they fell in with it, and so they laid into the offbeat. So everyone, bat, bat. So it worked out fine, but it was, it was a kind of like a little formula. But uh, it worked out nice. I'm really pleased with it, actually. And finally, finally, everyone, at the end of this segment, I should just mention that, according to the sources, there were indeed four other songs that were supposedly recorded during the Run Devil Run sessions. Now, whilst the audio for them has never surfaced, uh, at least none that I've heard of, there were a couple of songs that were indeed apparently recorded to a near-complete level during those seven sessions. We don't know where it was divided or who was on it, but apparently we have Searching, which is a song by the Coasters, Thumb in a Ride, again, another song by the Coasters, We're Gonna Move, which is another one of those Elvis wartime numbers, and Fools Like Me by Jerry Lee Lewis. Now, the odds of us hearing those songs are quite slim, at least whilst Paul is alive and kicking, because as far as he is concerned, the McCartney Archive series is a series that is defined by Linda McCartney's photography as well, and of course, Run Devil Run is an album that was released after her death. So we're probably not going to hear Search and Thumb in a Ride, We're Going to Move and Fools Like Me for a while. But hey, there's still stuff we haven't heard from the Chobber Sessions and Linda was actually there for that album. So I'm not going to hold my breath. Then again, it would be interesting to replace the three McCartney originals on this album with either three of or all four of those tracks and make it purely a covers experience. Not saying the album needs it, just that it would be something that I'd like to hear. Then we come to the part of the show that back in the day I would always forget about oh so often, actually so often that I did a whole side series with the original lineup of the Another Kind of Mind podcast, which is a series that is probably discontinued now. But yeah, anyway, this is the album cover review section of the show where I get to pour over the visual iconography for the album and discuss whether I think it's a good cover or not. And just what is the cover artwork for Run Devil Run? Well, what it is, if you'll pardon the pun, is pretty fucking cool. Why? Well, because the image on the front cover of this album is the storefront of the very shop that contained the Run Devil Run bath salts that Paul was talking about earlier whilst on holiday with his son James. The original store is called, or was called, Miller's Rexall Drugs, and it's a hoodoo and herbal medicine shop in downtown Atlanta, Georgia, at 87th Broad Street. Miller had no idea that this image and his shop was going to be included on this album cover, and apparently, when he first realised, he sued McCartney for illegally using the image, and apparently the two settled out of court. 
The only obvious alteration that is made to the image that I can think of is the fact that the shop isn't called Run Devil Run. Maybe some of the posters had been changed for copyright reasons. But yeah, regardless, the image is fucking great. And as far as I'm concerned, this may be one of the most evocative images on a Paul McCartney album cover of this period, at least until Chaos and Creation in the Backyard would come out a few years later. Like, I'm not putting it up there with Band on the Run or anything, but there's just something about the idea of this album being the process of Paul selling us and selling us the idea of these old rock and roll standards that I just find so engaging and fun. I mean, Paul has always been a huckster salesman, and I'm just glad he can be upfront about the whole thing now. This is a product to be sold, and so he's literally showing us a shop front. But it's not just that. It also just screams Americana and nostalgia and the 50s. And, you know, what could sum up the concept of this album better than that? All of the signs and the posters remind me of this wonderful mixture of like the ad scene in AMC's excellent show Mad Men and the kind of shysterism of the classic Old West American snake oil salesman. Again, both very appropriate images. And hey, if you want to get a little bit deeper with it, you could argue that the shop front, with all of its gaudy, flashy advertisements for, you know, enigmatic and holistic products, kind of reflects the commercial nature of the music from this album. Like, all of this rock and roll stuff was just a mass market product for teens in the 50s, and Paul isn't pretending like there is some deeper thing to it. This is just a rock and roll covers album, and I like that he's leaning into it. The whole thing also portrays that this isn't going to be particularly serious and it is going to be overtly kitsch, something that Paul would want to convey right away as not to disappoint anyone. Also, just as a piece of visual media, the vast array of bright, literally eye-catching colours is not only very striking, but I imagine it also literally helps sell the album as it's hard not to get drawn into the image. The rear artwork is basically the same as the front of the cover, but it's from a different perspective, you might say. Well, no, not might say. It is literally another photograph of the same store front, but taken from a different location and angle. It's taken a little further down the street and to the right, and whilst it isn't like the most creative image ever in terms of uniqueness, what it does do is reinforce that this shop is indeed a real place and not a fake um, or generated image, and so that really helps. It just sells the reality of the image and what it's trying to say just a little bit better. Also, this image would be used once again for the limited edition two-disc version of Run Devil Run for the like cardboard slipcase that would house both discs, and in that instance, it like zoomed in on the Run Devil Run sign. It's like it's a much more cropped image, and. Again, not that unique, but what it actually does do is it makes you feel like you are like underneath the sign and stood right there, again, from a, another literal perspective. So it is quite fun in that sense. Overall, I quite enjoy the visual iconography of Run Devil Run. There's not a lot of other supplementary media uh, in terms of visuals to go along with the Run Devil Run stuff. The only other thing is the second CD that comes in that limited edition slip case. And it's got the same kind of purple and yellow imagery that would go on to be used for the Cavern 1999 gig DVD. So there was definitely something else going on here. But 
it doesn't really link to the kind of 50s imagery used elsewhere. But overall, as far as the main album artwork goes, he was able to find something that not only conveyed the theme and fit the theme, but was also an interesting image in its own right. And, I mean, the fact that it's the very storefront that inspired the album, inspired the title, inspired that song, is is just so fucking cool. It ties it all up in a wonderfully neat bow. So, after all of that, the album was ready to go. But before Paul could release it, he had to build up some hype. Especially because he'd been off the scene for so long. Rather surprisingly, for me at least though, Paul did a lot more promotional work for this album than I ever expected. And it is clear that this was truly meant to be a proper comeback effort from him after that well-needed break. Now, I know I've questioned if this is an official studio album or not, or as like a side project album, but the media push made by Paul and MPL to give this album a wider release as possible is truly indicative of the same kind of scale of an off-the-ground or a Flaming Pie media release, with loads of appearances, performances and globe-trotting. So, regardless of whether it's an official proper canon album, Paul was treating it so in terms of the money, and it resulted in a shit-ton of content for us to cover, so let's not delay any further. First of all, Paul began in earnest to promote this album in the August of 1999 with the recording of the Run Devil Run EPK. For those who don't remember, an EPK means an electronic press kit, and they are used to provide potential media outlets with all the clips, sound bites, and audio bits you will ever need to help promote whatever you need to on TV, radio, online, whatever. These EPK interviews were oddly broken up into three kind of mini-episodes titled Produce Piece, Isolated Soundbites, and Party Piece. And they would go on to make up a lot of the Run Devil Run infomercials that you will have had the pleasure of listening to throughout the last episode. So, after having paid tribute to one of the original rock and rollers, Carl Perkins, in the spring of that year... On September 7th, 1999, Paul once again got his name back within the circles of old-school rock and roll fans by performing an impromptu version of Buddy Holly's own Rave On with Holly's original backing band, The Crickets, acting as his own backing band. This was on stage at McCartney's annual Buddy Holly party night, one of the last ones actually, which was being held at the Roseland Ballroom in New York. Normally quite the exclusive affair, this particular event was actually streamed live online, meaning that we have been treated, quote-unquote, to this little bit of audio. Okay, they've given me an A, and I'm now familiar with the key. So it's a... Little things you say do Make me want to be with you Rave on the 
Right there, Paul, I think you did that song better justice when you did it with Denny on Holly Days, but who am I to judge? Anyway, leading up to some more of the dedicated promotion, just to get his name out there in the wider sphere in general, on September 9th, Paul presented an award alongside Madonna at the MTV Music Video Awards. Now, I'm not sure if he did this to get people talking or just because he thinks he's a little bit above the modern pop and rock and roll scene, Paul refers to the winner of this award as, well, let's just play the clip. Here is Paul and Madonna presenting the award for best music video at the 1999 MTV Music Video Awards. It's your turn. Oh, yeah. All right. Um, Good evening, everybody. Uh... He's very shy. He's the shy beetle. That's it, right. What are we doing, babe? What's happening? Um, I think we're going to uh, give a... V- uh, right. Here, here are, the, are nominees. the nominees. Okay. And so... Uh, the winner is... The moment has finally arrived for the uh, best video of the last of the century, the last award of the century here. And uh, you guys tired yet? Feeling good? Feeling good? All right, man. Come on, you have to work okay, for it. Okay. Don't you want to know whose it is? Yeah. Who do you think it belongs to? So, no, no, I got it last year. Okay. Me and Madonna would like to uh, announce the best video of the year. And you'll never guess who it is, man. It's some guy called Lawrence Hill. I love that guy. And so after a couple of generic media appearances, Paul began to promote the album in earnest. And he started by getting the right circles interested, shall we say, with a series of listening parties where people would come socialise, and most importantly, listen to the album. These were ticketed events of varying exclusivity and varying different areas of seating and mingling ability. But as far as I'm aware, there was a healthy amount of normies allowed into these events. And in addition to getting to hear the album early, Paul would also come on stage to do a very brief, like, five, six-minute simple Q&A segment for the fans. The first of these listening parties began on the 17th of September 1999 and he hosted it at the LA House of Blues. Again, whilst some regular folk did squeeze in, it was a star-studded event boasting such guests as Brian Wilson, Gwen Stefani, Dave Coz, Woody Harrelson, Bill Wyman and Owen Wilson. Paul remained in LA for at least another day, though, as on the 18th of September, Paul headlined the Peter Party of the Century Concert and Humanitarian Awards at Paramount Studios. That's Peter as in P-E-T-A, as in P before the ethical treatment of animals. And, of course, whilst Paul was indeed there to promote his new album, and I'm sure most of the people in the audience were likely specifically there to see him play... The real reason that Paul McCartney was at this awards do was to be one of the presenters and give out the very first Linda McCartney Memorial Award. This award was a way for Peter to 
honour prominent animal rights activists over the years, normally with Paul presenting the award personally. That year, and some of you may scoff at this, the very first recipient of this award was none other than Pamela Anderson. Pamela Anderson's efforts include posing for Peter's ever-first Times Square billboard entitled Give Fur the Cold Shoulder, which asks fashion designers to abandon fur, uh, for her urging South African President Thabo Mbeki to end his country's export on elephants, and for her meeting with Monaco's Prince Albert to promote a ban on exotic animals at the Monte Carlo Circus Festival. Now, I'm going to say this without any irony, but considering where the story goes with Heather Mills, it's genuinely a shame that Paul didn't end up with Pam Anderson rather than Heather Mills. I mean, the shorthand that everyone talks about is that, you know, ah, oh, Heather was a, a sexy bit of rough for Paul after Linda's death. Well, why not that with Pam Anderson? Like, Pam's a very smart woman. She's a great businesswoman. Uh, she was a vegan. Surely they're a better match. Is it purely just because of the sex tape? Because I think that would be, if anything, an incentive for McCartney. Anyway, other recipients of the Linda McCartney Memorial Award include the family friend Chrissy Hind, singer-songwriter Morrissey, and, oh God, Alec Baldwin of all people. But yeah, for the show itself, Paul did a rehearsal set earlier in the day outside for the regular folk, and then later that night, he did the exact same six-song set for the intelligentsia of the LA scene, as well as vegetarians worldwide, including this song. Sometimes I'm right, sometimes I'm wrong. I can't help it if I don't know the song. All day I try to be a man. Help me to do it. Show me the plan. Then on Wednesday the 22nd of September, Paul went over to the East Coast to basically do the same thing as he did for the West by hosting another Run Devil Run listing party, this time at the Hammerstein Ballroom in New York City. Oddly enough, one of the first things that I remember coming across in doing my research for this episode was the picture of Judy Collins on her way into this said party. No idea why the algorithm forwarded that. Then, on the 28th of September, Paul went over to Germany to have a listening party with his still-rabid Central European fanbase. Fortunately, there's a very detailed first-hand account of this listening party. I'll post the full link down below. But what I did find particularly interesting is that the attendance number for this supposedly little listening party was between 1,000 and 1,500 people. Apparently, also, Paul told the press that he would no longer be signing anything at this event. I'm not sure if the dates truly line up there. 
in terms of coverage, only the Punked 12 TV show was able to grab an exclusive interview for a few words with Paul as he was leaving the event later that night. Sadly, I couldn't find any of the audio or footage of that. Then, two days later, on September 30th, 99, we have the official press launch for Run Devil Run at the Equinox, which was either a really hip club or hotel in London back then. Once more, this was another ticketed event of varying exclusivity. It also included a copy of the little press kit this time around, including the statement, the official press statement for the release, which read as thus. Paul McCartney is ready to rock again. Two and a half years since his last album, Paul is back with a loud new collection of the devil's music. Returning to the rawness of his roots, Paul McCartney is reprising the energised spirit and attitude of his earliest days in the music business with a 15-track album of thrash rock and roll. The new album, Run Devil Run, marks the first time in more than 10 years since Paul has recorded so raucously. Not since his famed Russian album of 88 has Mac got back to singing like this. Run Devil Run is a Paul McCartney anthology of some of his favourite rock and roll, primarily covered by Paul and a hand-picked band at Mac 3 speed. Alongside the classic rockers are three new Paul McCartney originals, including the sweat-making title track. Mirroring the hectic rate of the songs, Run Devil Run was recorded at Abbey Road Studios 2 in just one week, just like the Beatles did. At the early recording sessions of the Beatles, we worked in a very specific way, recording two songs in the morning and two after lunch. I have a professional nostalgia for that way of recording, and I wanted to see if we could do that with this album, said Paul. And we did. There was no time for thinking. Thinking was outlawed for the week. With rock and roll, you just do it, and by the end of the five days, we recorded all these songs. What you hear on the album is what happened in that week. With Paul predominantly sticking to lead vocal and his Hofner bass, he's backed on the album by a core band of Dave Gilmore and Mick Green on guitars, Ian Pace on drums, and Pete Wingfield on piano. Together, they revived the rebel yells of Chuck Berry, Gene Vincent, Carl Perkins, and early Elvis to rock out the century. Said Paul, This album is something I've wanted to do for years. Some people think I may have gone classical now. Maybe this will tell them that that's not the case. I still love my rock and roll. Following on from that, on the 24th of October, we saw the single release for No Other Baby, the lead and only single for this album. It was backed with Brown Eyed Handsome Man and the then exclusive Fabulous as B-Sides. And you could get this single on CD, promo CD, and 7-inch vinyl. Then, on November 3rd, Paul did a performance on a programme called Later with Jules Holland. Now, for anyone not in the know, Jules Holland was a member of the band Squeeze, and he's been a bit of a musical mainstay here in the UK, with his Later with Jules Holland series, where he has loads of live acts on, of his own curation. But the reason he is with Paul today is because... Not only did he record George Harrison's last song, Horse to Water, performing it also at the concert for George, but Jules Holland was also the interviewer for the entire anthology project. So yeah, he clearly is in the inner circle of Beatle friends. Now, any Jules Holland show, be it this, the regular series, or his annual Hootenannies, it's all just 
one big live party with a little interview here and there with performances scattered throughout. It's always very charming, always very fun, and these two were always bound to have a great chemistry on screen because they've done it before. Let's hear some of it now. Moment. First thing is, what was the first piece of music you can ever remember hearing? Hearing? Billy Cotton Bancho. Wakey, wakey! <laughs> dun, 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 dun. Oi, oi, oi! And then, right, what was your first... Soul music. Yeah, exactly. Where did you first hear Honey Hush? The first one you did. Um, John Lennon and Stuart Sutcliffe used to have um, a flat. Uh, Stuart, they both went to the art school. They had this flat. And we stayed over one night, me and George, who were younger. Mm. And it was very exciting for us staying out all night. Is this in Liverpool? In Liverpool. And um, in the morning, you know, the students' flats, they've got a mattress and there's maybe a record player and an ashtray. Yeah. I remember John just waking up in the morning, leaning out there, lighting the ciggy, putting the record on, and it was that one. Come here in this house. Johnny Burnett. That is something to wake up to, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> that really is. And um, did you play these, I mean, are these songs that you first played, like in the Cavern Club and places like that? Not these ones on the record. These are the ones we never got around to. Oh. But this kind of thing was what we played, yeah, in the beginning. And tell us about how, I mean, how did you sort of um, record it? Because it does, it's very, I think the hardest thing to capture is that element of boogie and excitement. It's like lightning in a bottle, that's what Pete, your pianist, said once. And you've captured that. How did you do that? It's like all the music here, it's live, you know. Mm. We play, basically, I played bass and sang at the same time, which I haven't done for a few years, but I used to record like that, you know. But that's all we did, really, just played it as a group and then uh, tried to get it right. Yeah. One more. One more, please. <laughs> some people like to rock, some people like to roll, but moving in the cool and cool satisfy my soul is ever On to November 13th now, and we see Paul making an appearance on some primetime Saturday night television here in the UK, with his appearance on Red Alert with the National Lottery. Absolutely no idea what this show is, I have no memory of it, despite at least being eight or nine at the time. There's only one sentence about this programme on Wikipedia, and it reads as thus. Red Alert was a BBC National Lottery game show, broadcast on BBC One, from the 13th of November 1999 to the 8th of April 2000. It was hosted by Lulu and Terry Alderton. So obviously Paul was the very first guest on this show, and I don't know any of the rules of the actual game or anything like that, but seemingly part of the format was having Lulu herself being able to muzzle her way in onto the stage during the performances, and so performing brown-eyed handsome man, we have Paul McCartney and Lulu. If I'm just a destiny to teach you to 
Then on November 16th, Paul made an appearance on the Big Breakfast television show, which is on Channel 4 here in the UK. Despite the name, this is a light entertainment TV show that is indeed shown in the evening. And at the time, it was hosted by UK TV mainstays Stephen Vaughan and Denise Van Alton. For some context before I play this clip, Stephen Vaughan had several shed-based gimmicks on the show, and Paul is being interviewed in a set that is made up to look like a UK garden shed. Let's hear the clip. Paul, first question I have to ask you. Uh, the nation waits with bated breath. Yes, Charlie. Do you have a shed? I have a little shed, yes. Do you have a shed? Just a place you go a little, to escape from... A woodworking shed, yes. A little where I whittle and plane. And... Yeah, you're a whittler. So I'm a whittler, yeah. <laughs> um, and you go, there, do you go there to compose songs? No. Where do you do, do that? To decompose. To decompose. Yes. Uh, I just go... For the same reason people go, to get away from everything, you know, and sand a bit of wood. Okay, where, where, where'd you go, where, where, where'd you go to actually when you're writing songs? Where's your songwriting place? I've got a little room in the house with a piano in it and a guitar. See, I put it to you, that is a shed. It is a type of shed. Do you see what I mean, the metaphorical shed? Do you see what yeah, I mean, Gary? Yeah. Do you see well, what I mean, though? Do you think he's a little bit too hung up on sheds, viewers? <laughs> Is it a sickness? I don't know. It okay. could be, Johnny. We saw your latest single, No Other Baby There. Uh, yeah. You couldn't find a copy of the track. No. Itself. Tell us the Originally, story. Originally. Yeah, tell us the story of this track. Um, I was going to make this rock and roll album, so I just thought of some songs that were from way, way, way back, and I just remembered this one. I never had the record till after I'd made the album, and then EMI very kindly gave me the record. I looked and I thought, I recognise that. It took me back about, you know, 70 years or something. Okay, so you, have you been going through it? I mean, on the album, there's a... Do you know what? I'll talk about that after the break, actually, because we're going to really get into the substance of that and the yeah, records on let's it. do it. It looked like you had a night just going through your record collection for your favourites and thought, that, 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 that. Well, my memory rather than my record collection, yeah, to sure. The jukebox of the mind. Of the mind. <laughs> the shed of the jukebox. The shed of the... Yeah. It's a sort of jukebox inside a shed inside your mind. Yeah, it really is, I suppose. <laughs> it's a beautiful thing. Do you know what? After the break, after the break, it's the, it's the paper review. Uh, Sir Paul will be with me for the rest of the show. Don't do that. It's McCartney. That's fun. Don't let me down. I'll bring hey, you hey, on hey, telly hey, for the hey, first hey. time. You, sorry, Sir Paul. That's not like it. That's I'll bring a knight of the realm on the show. First time he's been out for ages. In his shed. Yeah, but it's the shedness of it all. Well, you know, the house, that'll follow. Uh, this is Big Breakfast. Uh, join us after the break, please. See you soon. Also around this time, Paul did an interview with VH1 for their interview series VH1 to 1. This one is simply described as being filmed in, and I quote, mid-November, and there's no audio I can find. But yeah, according to the sources, Paul did a 25-minute Run Devil Run-based interview for VH1 sometime around here. Then, on November 20th, Paul made yet another UK TV appearance, and... Once more, it's a show that I probably should remember, but don't. And that is a pro 
and that is a program called Apocalypse Tube. Basically, this was a comeback special, like a one-off, for a show called The Tube that was originally broadcast on Channel 4, but this special was being broadcast on the new channel Sky 1. Back in the 80s, it was actually hosted by Jules Holland, of all people, and... I can't believe I didn't know this, Macca actually did two interviews on the original version of The Tube, both to promote albums, once in 83 with Pops of Peace and once in 86 with Press to Play. Anyway, this revival special is not hosted by Jules Holland, I have no idea what it's about, I have no idea why it's called Apocalypse Tube, and normally I would say that it's a bit of a shame that I can't find any audio or visuals of this one either, but... Considering it was hosted by much maligned UK radio DJ Chris Moyles, it's not too much of a loss. Following on from quite a few passe and generic TV spots, Paul then did something a little more substantial, classy and classic. On December 2nd, 99, Paul was interviewed and performed on the iconic, seminal, unforgettable, landmark British TV talk show, Parkinson. Now, this was the interview where he was specifically meant to be promoting Run Devil Run, but they do, of course, talk a lot about the Beatles, and and this is the one that has always stuck out in my mind as being the interview where Paul plays When the Wind is Blowing, a.k.a. Two Fingers, so this is that interview. I know we've covered it on this podcast here before. It really is a big one, folks. If you haven't seen it, either take half an hour and watch the televised version or an hour and a half and watch the uh, kind of dummy run, the rehearsal of it. Both are on YouTube. Both are absolutely amazing. I've actually been playing a lot from it today already. You've already heard a bit. And I will be playing the non-Run Devil Run based uh, songs as the secret track at the end of this episode. But still, if you've not seen this Parkinson interview, folks, you are missing out. And we're going to hear some more of it right now. Stop all that jackety
Spending your own time just. Then I'm coming over there. Oh, that down. Get rid of that. Okay, I might walk that. across. Thank you. Whatever the mood takes you. Well, tell me, Michael. Yes. When did you start in television? <laughs> About the same time as you, actually. <laughs> oh dear. Yeah. Right then. Well, that's it. We start talking. Yeah. Anything. Yes. And uh, well, we'll start off with a bit about that, and, and how you came to do it, and then I'm going to. Rather than more or less chronologically, really, I think from that point on, it seems to make sense. And then we get to the point where you know you met you met John, and uh, I made the point that you know he was the kind of guy as I, I think whenever I met him, that you, you actually tried to impress, didn't you? I mean, he was that kind of man. He had that mm. sort of thing about him. Mm. And so you can say, well, whatever, you know, I've impressed him with this. I'm not saying anything. You know, all right. I'm letting you talk. All right, I'll I don't mind. <laughs> I'm just here to do the music. <laughs> it's going to be a nightmare. <laughs> nightmare show. Yeah, he was great. Mm. Uh, no, I will, I will respond. I know. I, I will know. respond in kind. Yeah, he was a bit of a sort of legend in his own street. <laughs> it was at the time. It was a little bit, yeah. Used to see him on the, on the bus with his big sideburns, you know, and think, ooh. A real Ted. If you were to just tell somebody what he was like, what would you say? If you describe don't, him. Hmm. Um, ask about that. You just, I mean, don't. Complex. Complex, yes, certainly was that, wasn't well, it? Yes, he was. He was very, very sweet, very, very lovable, and yet um, very um, disturbed. Mm. So, so very much always having to prove himself. Uh, so that's where all the great wit came from. Because it, it basically, it's because of the tragedies in his life. That's right. You know, his... Um, brought up by his auntie. Brought up by his auntie. Dad leaving home when he was three. That's right. Brought up by his auntie. Mom being Uncle died. He started to think he was a jinx on the male line. And then his mom getting knocked over right outside the house by an off-duty policeman who was supposed to be a bit drunk. So, you know, you're starting to hate the world here. Mm. Whereas I was very lucky. Um, my mom and dad... I. I um, were great and kind of, you know, I had no problems at all till she died. Right. And that brought me and John together. Oh, well, you, were, you were very young when she died, weren't you? 14? I was about 14, 14 yeah. 14 when she died. So yeah. that was something John and I had in common that our mums had died, in, uh, you know, around about that time. But the way it was a sibling thing, wasn't it, between the two of you? I mean, you were like brothers in a sense, right? Yeah, I think so. You know, as far as that was concerned, I think all of us in the group were, because we wrote together. And I think because our mums had died. It gave us, we sort of knew about that depth of sadness mm. that you couldn't show the world because we were a teenager. You yes, had to look sure. hard and, you know, yeah, 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 oh, yeah, mum died, yeah. In fact, I mean, I'm not sure, I don't normally mention it too much, but we kind of knew that uh, when people had talked to us, they said, what's your mum think about it? And then we go, she died. And we knew people go, oh, sorry. And we quite like to see them get uncomfortable. <laughs> you know, it's a weird little thing. Yeah. It's, we used yeah. to, like, know that... Each of us knew that. Yes. Kind of little things like that brought us a bit more together, you know. Yeah. I don't want to do the. I mean, do you want Paul to go through the, just the, the mechanics of the, the guitar business? thing? The guitar, yes. Okay. So we'll be talking about John. And you say, well, right. Yeah. You know, I impressed him very much, or whatever it is with this. So yeah, the thing was that um, when I showed up at this Wilton Village fete, um, I was one and a half years younger than him. Uh, and he'd got a bit drunk in between the two sets. They had an afternoon thing and an evening thing. And uh, 
So when I met him, I thought he was a bit beery, you know, I wasn't entirely impressed, really, because I had a sheltered upbringing. I was a bit young. And, um, but I knew this one song, so, and I, I, I got his guitar, I think it was, and turned it upside down, played it here, but it was upside down. It was strung for a right-handed person. And um, uh, the, basically, this song that I knew impressed him, and it's actually what got me in the Beatles. Uh, it's called 20 Flight Rocky. So I'm playing this upside down. Well, I've got a girl with a record machine when it comes to rocking, she's a queen. To dance on a Saturday night All alone I can hold her tight She lives on the 20th floor uptown The elevator's broken down But I walk on two, flat, three, flat, four Five, six, seven, five, five more Up on the 12th I'm starting to sag Fifteen before I'm ready to drag I get to the top, I'm too tired to rock And finally on December 11th, right at the end of the year, and importantly, not around the same time he did the German Run Devil Run listening party back in Cologne, Paul returns to Germany, aka the country of his original apprenticeship, and once again it was to appear on the widely popular European TV show Wettendass, or Wettendass if I'm not doing an offensive German accent. As a bit of background though, and I've only just learned this, but Wettendass was a very fucking big deal, folks. According to the ever-reliable Wikipedia, even to this day, it is one of, if not the largest TV show in Europe, with some pretty crazy viewership numbers in the hundreds of millions range. I don't know if it was that big back then, but of course media was still a lot bigger back then in, in, in all respects, so one cannot underestimate the importance of Paul using this programme to appeal to the European market. He made a lot of money there in the 90s. Off the ground, the expanded edition was only available in certain European territories, and Vet and Das almost certainly would have been a big part of that. And because it was such a big event, of course, Paul had to plug his latest single, even though it, it had like come out like nearly half a year ago at this point. But yeah, playing No Other Baby on Vet and Das. This is Paul McCartney. Vom Rock'n'Roll, der frühen Jahre inspirieren lassen. Er war immer ein echter Rock'n'Roller, egal was er mit den Beatles auch gemacht hat. Seine aktuelle CD, Run Devil Run, ist eine Hommage an diese Zeit. Und wie gesagt, am Dienstag exklusives Konzert für 150 Leute. Ein Titel daraus heute für Sie zu Hause. Paul McCartney mit No Other Baby. We are at the end of that timeline. I've got to reverse it slightly because, well, 
The album came out on the 4th of October 99. I was just seven years old, one month and one day old at that time. But yeah, October 4th is when Run Devil Run was released. It was available on CD, vinyl, cassette, and in the most 1999 move ever, you could also get it on mini-disc. There was also that two-disc CD set with the cool little slipcase, where the second disc contains the EPK interview, slash the Run Devil Run interview. You also had the coveted singles box set that was released around this time that breaks the whole album down into a bunch of A and B side singles in this gorgeous red box. It's the most gorgeous thing ever. Again, I am courting someone over potentially buying one later in the year. We'll see how that goes. Fingers crossed. But was it all worth it? Was Run Devil Run truly the low risk yet still kind of glorious return to form for Paul McCartney? Well, whilst Chris Thomas said that Paul wasn't thinking it was going to be the next big record, the album actually did a whole lot better than what was expected of it. I mean, this isn't a sleeper hit in the realm of Unplugged, and it certainly didn't make as memorable a splash as Flaming Pie, but for an album of 50-year-old rock and roll covers that exists just to get Paul back into the studio and recording again, it really should be proud of how much plastic it could shift. And shift plastic and vinyl it did. Let's go to the charts now. From worst to best, it got to number 99 in Australia, number 55 in France, 53 in the Netherlands, 44 in Belgium, 36 in Switzerland, number 30 in Japan, number 27 on the US Billboard Top 200, number 23 in Sweden, number 21 in Germany, number 18 in Austria, number 12 in Norway, and finally, on the 10th of October 1999, Run Devil Run entered the UK album charts at number 12. That would be its peak position. It then dropped down to number 94 a couple of weeks later, but then it was boosted back up with Christmas sales that kept it in the top 50, with six weeks in the top 50 overall. Ultimately, no matter which way you shake it, I don't think number 12 in the UK is anything to be sniffed at whatsoever. I mean, I don't know what the suits at NPL were really expecting with this one, but I don't think it's unreasonable, yes, that this surpassed its low expectations. Let's not forget, this is an artist in his late 50s doing songs from the late 50s. I don't care if he is a Beatle, this could have absolutely bombed. Not Broad Street bombed, but... It still could have gone very badly and been a massive knock to Paul's confidence. And yeah, sadly the single No Other Baby might have done that somewhat. That single did not fare nearly as well, with it only getting to number 42 on the UK singles chart. And yeah, there is more money to be made off albums, but, you know, not even in the top 40. That must have been a bit of a disappointment to Paul. But the very reasons that mean this single probably failed, especially with this being at the start of the internet age and illegal file sharing, makes the successes of the album even greater. You know, this is long enough after the Beatles anthology for him not just to get a free number one or even a top 40. And seeing as how we are on the precipice of a bit of a trough in terms of Paul's popularity, the kind of irrelevant early 2000s period of his career, I'm just so glad to see that this album did as well as it did. It's also a true testament to how hard he worked during the promotion for this album. That extra oomph and media presence really turned what should be a minor side project album into something that would actually be more successful than his next proper studio album, Driving Rain. 
At the end of the day, folks, for any legacy artist, this album would have been considered a smash hit. But the scales are always off when it comes to Paul. At best, it's only ever been seen as a moderate success. But Paul also thinks that Wildlife and Back to the Egg were failures. So what does he know, eh? Right, everyone, we are quickly approaching the end of this part two. And so before we go to part three, where me and my guest are going to go through our opinions on Run Devil Run, it is important for us to quickly get some other people's views mixed into this conversation as to give us a broader perspective on the material as possible. So, as always, let us wind down with a few words of review from people who aren't myself, as shockingly humble as that may sound. Thankfully, we have at least one contemporaneous review of this release. It's from Rolling Stone and is by David Wilde, published on October 28th, 1999. He writes... This album is a vivid reminder of McCartney's massive natural charm and innate musicality. It is impossible not to be affected by the intimate way in which he invests himself into these primal songs of loss and love. Especially No Other Baby, a minor hit for Chad and Jeremy and Ricky Nelson's Lonesome Town. McCartney also successfully tackles two Elvis gems, All Shook Up, All Shook Up and I Got Stung. This is timeless teen music performed with youthful abandon, but with added adult resonance. Run Devil Run is simultaneously heartbreaking and life-affirming. It's a hint that the upbeat optimism that has caused this man to so often be critically undervalued is tied to the same strength that is seeing him through. As for the rest of us, we get a great, unpretentious rock and roll record into the bargain. Then, thankfully, Wikipedia keeps hanging us on to legitimate sources thread by thread for an extra few seconds, as we have a quote from McCartney biographer Peter Ames Carlin, who said that despite the rock and roll songs being written by other people, the album was, quote, the most deeply autobiographical album of Paul's entire career. And because sources are lax, we go straight on to online sources Keith Phipps, writing for the AV Club on the 4th of October 99, actually sums it all up quite succinctly, stating, In terms of musical innovation, it scores a zero. But in other terms, like enjoyability, joyousness of expression, and the way it confirms the enduring power of pure rock and roll, it's off the scale. A momentously enjoyable minor effort that makes a major statement. Next up, we have a quick quote from The Hokey Blog. Great name. They write, your enjoyment of this album will almost entirely rely on your affection for these tunes. What can be said, however, is that Paul and co. attack the material with verve, energy, talent and top-notch musicianship. There's a laid-back sense of fun and enjoyment that seeps through every track. The pure rock energy of She Said Yeah, All Shook Up, Brown-Eyed Handsome Man, I Got Stung and Party cannot be denied. The doo-wop beauty of Lonesome Town hits that sweet spot just perfectly. McCartney's vocal performance here is wonderful. They also conclude with, It's a very decent collection of rock and roll covers. That it is. User The Bricker from AlbumOfTheYear.com writes, Credit has to be given where credit is due. McCartney's version of All Shook Up is honestly pretty awesome. And thankfully, it did come pretty early in the album. Because Run Devil Run was no different from any other repetitive album. Getting later songs all mashed together in listeners' ears and all in all being a pretty forgettable experience. I enjoyed the power and the drive here that can be heard in all the songs, but 
it's much tougher to complement them individually when they all sound the same. User BrightEye14 from RateYourMusic.com writes, This is far better than his first 50s cover project from the late 80s, in large part because of the context. This one seemed to be made in a fit of embarrassment after he released a couple of poorly received albums. This one finds Paul retreating into a cocoon of safety during a period of grief. His beloved wife Linda passed away and this was the first project he undertook after she was gone. This is the music that he had loved since boyhood. Of course he was going to return to it. It would feel safe and good to him, not to psychoanalyse too much. It's also just straight up better than Chobba VCCR. The performances, the production, the singing, my god the singing, it's all leagues better. No Other Baby is legitimately great and it is the track that I would choose to represent Run Devil Run in some list of one track per album from Paul. It simmers and simmers and never actually explodes, but it still feels like it's accelerating towards something. The speedy title track is another scorcher as well. I should actually listen to this album more than I do. I don't often reach for covers albums, but this is a strong release full of passion and emotion. User Forever Trees Green on RateYourMusic.com writes, Not so sure about this one. The originals had been the easy highlights on one of his other covers albums, Kisses from the Bottom, but here they come off quite weak, which is really disappointing. This isn't the first time Paul has attempted something like this. He did it once ten years previously with the Russian album. Pure fun, though, is what this album screens out to me. Paul would form a band he has still today after this album, so this is the last time he'd be playing with a new band just for one album. If you're a big Elvis fan, you will know several of these songs already, but these are good performances and at times are even more exciting than Elvis was with a modern sounding band. Then user RemTIW, who I'm sure we've, we've, we've done before here, from RateYourMusic.com writes, while doing another covers record after the promising Flaming Pie was admittedly a bit of a disappointment, this one at least had some artistic purpose fueling it, which is more than can be said for his last covers album. In reality, what Run Devil Run is, is the sound of a man coming to grips with the loss of a soulmate. However, anyone coming into this expecting a voyeuristic look into McCartney's broken heart, or maybe a Take No Prisoners expose into the man's soul, a la John's Plastic Ono Band album, are gonna have to look elsewhere. That is not Paul's style. Instead, what we get is a guy coping with his pain by retreating into the things that gave him pleasure and strength, particularly first-generation rock and roll. In the end, if making this album gave Paul a sense of purpose while he coped with losing Linda, then it makes its own existence worth it, for him at least. But for an audience, this can't help but feel like a slight missed opportunity when a more personal singer-songwriter effort was just sitting there hoping to be made. But again, Paul is not that kind of songwriter, and expecting him to be 100% personal and honest on a record like this is a losing battle that's not worth fighting. Oh, and again, to quote Paul DeNoyer in Conversations with McCartney, my favourite quote about Run Devil Run, The album rocked like a bastard. And we are done, everyone. That is everything you need to know leading up to my review of Run Devil Run with TJ Shanoff of the Untitled Beatles podcast. That will be the very next episode. I hope you've been able to cram all of this info in. I know we've done a lot of music and a lot of clips. It's all so much to take in. I hope you've all been keeping up. I hope you've all been enjoying the episode. I've really had a lot of fun putting this one together. 
it's clear that my promotional sections of the show are now becoming whole episodes in length by themselves, but we will see how that progresses in future. I can't wait to go back and give albums like McCartney and Ram and Wildlife this exact same kind of treatment. It's just calling out to me. But yep, we are going to be pressing on with episode three of Run Devil Run. Then I'll be doing an episode of The Cavern Gig with a couple of old friends as well. Before then, moving on to Wingspan. Again, with an old friend of the podcast as well. Thank you all once again for listening to another episode of Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. I am, of course, your host, Sam Wiles. Stick around for next week, of course, for part three. And I'll see you then. Peace and love, peace and love. No more autographs. Harry Krishna, Harry, Harry Krishna. Play us out, gang. Then we'll talk about the song that's been what, played seven million times on American radio. <clears throat> if you want to listen that long, it'll be 25 years of your life it would take you. <laughs> <laughs> There's 350 versions alone in the BBC Record Library, because I checked. Yes, oh my God. There's only one that's worth listening to, and it's this one, isn't it? That's I want one. them all for Christmas. <laughs> um, I mean, you could have written that one song and then retired, couldn't you? I mean, a very sort of wealthy could have, man. Could yeah. I mean, That would have been good. But, um... You know, the thing, the truth of the matter is, I, I love it too much. You do? I mean, you I, never get sick I of should retire now, really. You know, some people are calling for it. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, no, I just love it too much. You know, if they sack me, I'd do it as a hobby. Do, do, I mean, we all know the story about, you know, that you dreamed it. And that, but have you ever thought where the dream came from? I mean, what is it about in the end? Um, I never thought at the time, but I think now people have since suggested, as I'm lying on the psychiatrist's couch, <laughs> that it was probably to do with the death of my mum. Really? Because um, it would be a few years after she died, yeah. You were 22 when you wrote it, so... Yeah, so... That's a few years, what... Um, maths, six years after she died, about, yeah. yeah. Eight years. So, um, 
I think, it, I think it's true, you know, why she had to go, I don't know, she didn't say. Yes. So it might have been to do with that. I never realised at the time. I mean, I thought I was a big grown-up man at 22, you know. <laughs> I'm not half the man uh, I used to be. <laughs> be 11. <laughs> <laughs> OK, let's do it. Yesterday All my troubles seem so far away Now it looks as though they're here to stay Oh, I believe in yesterday Suddenly, string quartet I'm not half the man I used to be there's a shadow hanging over me, Hank Marvin. Oh, yesterday came suddenly. Why she had to go, I don't know. She wouldn't say. I said something. Such an easy game to play Now I need a place to hide away Oh, I believe in yesterday Short version mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No Okay, now I think what we're going to have to do is take a recording break at the beginning of this next section because when I say behold a grand piano, there isn't one there, mm. so they're going to have to bring one in. Okay. So that'll be the, the cue as daft as that, you know, say so behold a grand piano. We'll take a short <clears throat> break and then stick the piano in there. You explain to the audience, someone explain recording break. Yes. Um. Thank you very much. The song will make grandmother vote. The long and winding road that leads to your door will never disappear. I've seen that road before mm. It always leads me here Lead me to your door The wild and windy night That the Let me know 
And many times I cry Anywhere you never know The many ways I try But still they lead me back To the long and winding road You left me standing here A long, long time ago Don't leave me waiting here Lead me to And um, probably ask you if you ever got some writer's block. And then, you know, what, I mean, things, what sort of uh, inspires you? Towns inspire you? Places inspire you? Then. Um, yeah, it could be anything, really. You, you never know your luck, you know, what could inspire you. But I happen to be in New York this time, and uh, at this lovely apartment, I'll tell you all about it, nice and fresh. And um, so I wrote this song there. It's just a new one. I'm kind of working on stuff. So this I, is the world premiere, is it? It's the world, world premiere. premiere. Better oh, get it right. Song. If I don't, I'll stop and start again. <laughs> Here we go.
with that little song in between Long and Winding Road and that. What do you think? <coughs> Don't know. What should we leave it as it is? Leave it to you. But we could end on a fun note, maybe. Oh, it, you know what, it, it leads nicely musically right, from Long and Winding, because okay. Long and Winding actually finishes probably the only other song I've ever written in, in that key, and then this one. <laughs> <laughs> 